0: The following program is an MLWRadio.com production.
1: How can our listeners lower their monthly payments or consolidate their debt? TheyWithBooth.com can't be beat. The ultimate way to build wealth is
2: homeownership. My little warriors need to become homeowners forever.
0: Tell the credit card companies and your greedy landlord, you're fine.
2: You don't need no money out of pocket. Ha, fui, baba. Go to SaveWithBruce.com or I break the back of the jabroni. (laughs) I was hoping to talk to Bruce. We want to personally help you get started saving money,
0: buying
1: the home of your dreams, and help you get out of debt right here at SaveWithBruce.com. We make this fast. We make it easy. It's just a few clicks to get you started to saving money immediately. Start saving with just a few clicks right here at SaveWithBruce.com. NMLS
2: 65084. Equal housing lender.
1: This week's episode of What Happened When Monday is all about the 1996 bash at the beach, and more importantly, when Hulk Hogan turned heel. It's one of the most talked about moments in the history of wrestling, and we are actually reliving some of those great memories on YouTube right now at youtube.com forward slash GoPro wrestling. You see, that's what's fun about the wrestling business to me is you get to see what happened in front of the camera but then we get to talk about what happened behind the camera for years. Like right now over at GoPro Wrestling, you can check out Lex Luger talking about the WrestleMania 10 rumor where he was supposed to win the world title. Cody Rhodes shares the DX story and why he wanted to end the Stardust gimmick in the WWE. And of course, we've got a one-hour interview with Vader. He's going to open up about having two years to live and even shoot on Paul Orndorff and many others. You can also check out Greg the Hammer Valentine ripping his old tag team partner Brutus Beefcake DDP has some great stories about the Monday Night Wars, and Maria Bennett, who just returned to the WWE with her husband, gives a phenomenal interview where she rips Donald Trump. Much more in the archives, and new ones coming out all the time. New videos and interviews are posted weekly. Just go relive these great memories by subscribing to the GoPro Wrestling YouTube channel and turn your notifications on. Then hit that subscribe button and share the channel with your friends. You're all set. And our man, Andrew, is actually giving away free weekly prizes. All you've got to do is subscribe and then drop him an email at goprowrestling at gmail.com. Include your YouTube ID and your email, and you'll automatically be entered into that weekly contest. You can also follow him over on Twitter at goprowrestling. But most importantly, relive the great memories of professional wrestling right now on YouTube at youtube.com forward slash goprowrestling.
0: The WHW Monday, Tony Schiavone and Conrad Thompson talking about the great years of world championship wrestling, the NWA and Jim Crockett promotions. And now let's go to the ring. Here's your co-host. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson.
1: Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson. And you're listening to what happened when Monday right here on the MLW radio network. But the man of the hour by God, Tony Schiavone is with us. What's going on, man? How are you? Hey,
0: Conrad, what's up, buddy? What's up, Slapdicks? And boy, are we excited because our countdown is on to our live show coming up on the 9th of July at Three Links in Dallas. We are going to be live on stage. I can't wait to see you and Bruce (laughs) and all three of us do a belly bump before the day is over. So we're having a lot of fun. uh, We appreciate all the response to our program so far. Uh, Thanks for everything, guys. Uh, Conrad, thanks to you Uh, and, of course, uh, Court Bauer for getting me back into wrestling. Never thought I would get back into this shit, but here I am.
1: Uh, and you're knee deep, man. We're actually promoting live shows. That's our very first one. We want your support. We want to see you this Sunday in Dallas at three links on Elm street. There's only one place to get your tickets. It's whwlive.com. We've got a lot of fun stuff planned. We're going to talk a little Monday night wars with Bruce and Tony. And of course, we're going to talk about Tony's year with the world wrestling federation. We're specifically going to focus on SummerSlam 1989, There's got to be some fun Vince McMahon stories in there, Uh, all that and more. It's going down this Sunday in Dallas, just before great balls of fire. Tickets are still on sale at whwlive.com. And if you've ever wanted to meet Tony or meet Bruce or pick their brain or have a question, this is your chance to do it. We're opening the doors at one o'clock. Everyone is welcome to come on in. There's no like separate levels or tiers of tickets. Everybody's VIP. Get as many pictures, autographs, pick their brain. Come fellowship from one to three. And then from three to five, we're going to make you laugh. It's whwlive.com. But this week, Tony, we are going back to our traditional poll format. And we had a poll where the 1996 bash at the beach is the runaway winner. But before we get to uh, Hulk Hogan turning heel, let's talk about last week's horseman episode. We've kind of put a bow on the horseman for now. Uh, we'll pick back up in the future with more Horseman episodes, I'm sure. But what was the feedback overall you got from our two Horseman episodes?
0: Well, the most feedback I got was the story about uh, Barry Windham hitting me in the back of the head with a water burger, and I'm falling asleep with the Whataburger on the back of my head. That's the most feedback I got online and from everybody on Twitter. Everybody has their own opinion, Conrad, on uh, who's their favorite Horseman. Uh, and obviously, you and I have our own opinion as well. Still, I go back to the the original Horseman days uh, with Holy Anderson part of the group. But I think it's it's very interesting how even today, uh, and I know the Horsemen have been inducted into the WWE Hall of Fame, but even today how the Horsemen have a profound impact on wrestling fans and how they were probably ahead of their time as far as groups are concerned or or factions or gangs, if you will, are concerned. Uh, The Horsemen uh, live in wrestling history even today. Uh, and I'm, I'm really, uh, and, and I go back and, and I still look at some of that stuff and I think, my God, I was holding the microphone for some of this legendary stuff. It's, it's just absolutely amazing. So i I was pretty thrilled about that. You interrupt
2: your current program for a special announcement from what happened when Mondays with Tony Schiavone. We are pleased to announce a very special exclusive opportunity for fans of what happened when to enjoy the Tony Schiavone experience the day before the podcast super show in Dallas, Texas on Saturday, July 8th from 7. PM to 10 PM at a secret location to sign up and confirm your spot. Or for more information, go to facebook.com slash W.H.W. Monday. The first 10 listeners to sign up and confirm payment for the Tony Shavani experience will enjoy dinner with Conrad and Tony in an exclusive VIP lanyard assigned 8x10 of Tony. Some What Happened When swag, a lifetime of memories, laughs, and good times. And there may be a surprise or two as well. We are limiting this experience to 10 listeners. So first come, first serve. We aren't buying you dinner. But you will get a a once-in-a-lifetime chance to hear stories, ask questions, and have a fun, intimate evening with Conrad and Tony. This is our first one, so count on being blown away by the experience. Now, once again, this is the day before the Super Show in Dallas on Saturday, July 8th from 7 p.m. to 10 p.m. For more information or to sign up and confirm payment and your spot, go to Facebook.com slash w h w monday that's facebook.com slash w h w monday hope to see you there you now return to your scheduled programming
1: well and we're thrilled about it too and and we want you to go enjoy that in the archives it's horseman part one and part two over a quarter million of you have checked out those shows so far we really appreciate all the support there Uh, But now let's get into why we're really here. It's the 1996 Bash at the Beach. Uh, But before we do so, we ought to give a quick shout out to our friends over at worldofwrestlingfigures.com. If you've been having trouble finding a hard-to-find wrestling figure, some sort of rare piece of memorabilia you'd like, you can find all the rare classic superstars, elites, two-packs, and many other rare wrestling figures at worldofwrestlingfigures.com. Now, Bash at the Beach 1996 happened... Uh, it's hard to believe that this is the case 19 years ago on July 7th from the ocean center in Daytona beach, Florida. Um, Tony, when I tell you that this happened nearly 20 years ago, how old do you feel? I feel, I I feel like, uh, you know, when you watch it, it doesn't seem like
0: it was that long ago, right? But then when you sit back and you think about it, it makes me feel old because I'm looking at some of the people in the stands who are like kids and thinking, Boy, those guys are in their thirties now. Sure. And, uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm an old fart, man, man, am I ever, but even though I'm old, some of the things that apply to wrestling back then to me are, are important throughout history. Uh, and, uh, that was quite a moment for us. It was quite a moment in the business and it was really the moment, uh, to me that set the table for the Monday night wars that one night.
1: Yeah. It's Uh, it's really hard to argue that, you know, there was so much going on in wrestling, but everything was still kind of, um, not near the level it could be. And so you started to see WCW kind of dig themselves out of a hole with nitro and 96 would be their first really profitable year. And of course they would go on to eclipse that in 97 and 98. And we kind of know what happened after that, um, But WCW was kind of leading the change here, and it felt like prior to this angle, a lot of what WCW had done was just kind of copycatting what Vince had done or recycling old Vince ideas. And this idea and its execution would be really one of the first things that the WWF had to play catch up on. Would you agree with that? Yeah. uh,
0: And I know we'll probably touch on a little bit later in this podcast, Conrad, but Going back and listening to that interview that Hogan did in the ring after he turned was a spectacular heel interview. Oh, yeah. And it it crossed the line between what is real and what is not, because it was an interview about the WWF, about the fans supporting him, and about coming to WCW. It kind of tied everything together, and it became almost like a shoot interview. And it may have been a shoot interview, who knows, back then. Uh, but uh, it uh, to me, it, it goes down as one of the most important and one of the best interviews that we had ever done.
1: Uh, without question. Um, well, before we get into that, let's talk about just the show itself. Bash at the Beach 97 and 2000 took place at the same building here, the Ocean Center in Daytona. And this seems like a, a theme for WCW they would run the same pay-per-views in the same towns and often the same buildings year after year, after year, going all the way back to Jim Crockett promotions. Why do you think they continued this tradition here? They had great relationships
0: with buildings, uh, some buildings they couldn't run and some buildings that they ran, they knew that they would get a good house. So a lot of it was just based on, uh, doing yep. the same thing every week or every month and, and knowing that you would have a good house. And just going into markets where you had good TV clearances, those were all important parts of it. I mean, you could venture out, and, and Crockett did eventually, you know, venture out. Uh, but it was expensive to venture out from Atlanta uh, to places out west where you weren't sure that if you had a good enough TV clearance, or if you weren't sure you had a good building, you know. Forever in New York, uh, the New York City market, we ran the Nassau Coliseum. That's because we couldn't run Madison Square Garden. Uh, and, uh, Philadelphia, we ran the civic center for all those years because we couldn't run the spectrum. Uh, that changed. Of course, we started running the spectrum a little bit later on, but they, they went to the same places because they had good relationships. They had good clearances and it was a good place to draw people. I mean, you know, it's, it's logic. It's really, uh, logic when you talk about booking venues.
1: Well, and it obviously worked. Uh, Bash at the Beach drew a sellout of 8,300 fans, and it sold out roughly two and a half hours before the show. Uh, But they had more than 2,000 walk-ups turned away, so they could have even packed more in there. Um, Allegedly, the paid attendance, though, was only 6,400 because WCW, not being sure if they could sell it out or not, started a paper in the last week. So 6,400 folks actually paid for their tickets. 2,000 paying customers were turned away it's weird to think about this in terms of this being one of the more famous pay-per-views in history. They only had a $72,000 gate. And it feels like when you're, when we're going to talk about some of the history that took place here, 72,000 seems like an anemic amount. I mean, WWE is pulling more than that on house shows now.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, it also seems when you talk about papering a house that they were very unsure of themselves. On I mean, they look, in hindsight, if you think, okay, we're going to paper, we're going to give away 2,000 tickets. What does 2,000 tickets, what does it matter? Right. I mean, I would have, I would have gone ahead and said, well, you know, we're not going to paper it. If 2,000 people don't show up, 2,000 people don't show up, it's not going to mean that much on TV. In hindsight, they could have sold the building smack dab out. Uh, but that's the case of WCW being still not being too confident in what they could do. And they would get a lot of feedback. Eric would get a lot of feedback from the, uh, the promoters uh, back then. You know Gary Jester, and I talked to Gary last week. Believe it or not, being one of them, uh, and uh, Zane Bresloff being another one, uh, Elliot Murnick, who by the way passed away this past week, and I really feel bad about that because Elliot, Elliot was a good guy. Uh, they they all would give their uh, feedback to the front office uh, and uh, and talk about Chip Burnham was another one, late Chip Burnham talk about what they thought the the market could do and what the uh, and what they thought the house would be, and then the decision would be made to paper the house. So it was a mistake, but it wouldn't be the first mistake we would make, obviously, but, uh, uh, it looked good on TV, buddy. It looked great on TV and they had a great reaction in the crowd too. all that stuff.
1: Well, let's talk about what the uh, crowd at home thought about it in the wrestling observer newsletter, they did a fan poll a reader poll, and it got 74% thumbs up and 12.6% thumbs down with 13% thumbs in the middle. Given the, the angle that finished here, I don't know how this didn't get thumbs up across the board. Um, when this show was over, not, not when you rewatched it this week, but when this show was over back in the day, did you Mm -hmm. think this was a good show? What do you remember your takeaway being?
0: Oh, I remember going to the backstage and we all were like high-fiving and hugging and thinking like, man, we had done something really, really big back then. Uh, there was no question when I walked out, uh, this was, uh, a big event there had been many times through the years, uh, especially moving forward. When I started hosting WCW Monday, Nitro and thunder that when the show was over, we would bolt literally sprint to our car to try to hop in the car and get out of, out of the building, out of the way of the building, uh, before, uh, the fans let out so we wouldn't get caught in traffic. Now, of course we were staying across the street in Daytona beach, but this was one where we kind of hung around in the backstage area, me and Dusty and, and Okerlin and, and Heenan kind of hung around the backstage area and kind of all discussed and, you know, gave, uh, congratulated each other on great work. Uh, this was one of the real few times that we did it because we knew that something, uh, Major. special had happened.
1: Yeah. Um, you know, we're going to talk about the gravity of that situation and the turn and the moment and all that in a little bit, I guess, but the, where would you rank this as far as most important pay-per-views in wcw history well i think this is number one really
0: yeah absolutely uh I, you can give me uh what you think would be a uh, number one but but i think this is number one because it started the nwo uh hogan mentioned new world order then he called a new world organization but that's this is this has started it this is the beginning of of WCW being red hot and WCW being a, uh, being a, a player mainstream, even though they had tried so many years. I, I think this is the most important one we've ever done. I think this is number one. Now, it probably not going to come out as number one in buy rates. And a lot of people could say that maybe that the first Hulk Hogan won when he beat flair in Orlando would be number one as well. But I, I would say this one.
1: Yeah. To me, it's, it's a short list. Uh, but the bash of the beach, 94, uh, with Hogan Flair, is obviously right. on the list. Starcade 97, in my opinion, is on the list. The Sting-Hogan payoff. And then right. here, I think those are probably the big three. Um, let's talk about what the the fans thought of the actual matches. The best match poll was won in a landslide by Rey Mysterio and Psychosis. Second place, of course, was the main event. The overwhelming worst match, based on the reader poll and the observer, uh, was John Tenta versus Big Bubba Rogers and then Jim Duggan. And Diamond Dallas Page. Um, Before we get into the show, let's kind of talk a little bit about the background and what led to the pay-per-view. Of course, on May 27th, this is 1996, of course, Scott Hall makes a very shocking and unexpected debut by walking through the crowd on Nitro. And I'm sure we'll cover that in long form on another time. Um, But he cuts a promo that got the entire wrestling world talking. And before the end of the show, Hall would reappear and then go to the announcer's table to confront Eric Bischoff. And he says something like, we're sick of it. Bischoff wants to drill down on what do you mean? Who's we, and Scott Hall says something like get three of his very best. And so it feels like from that very first promo at the end of May, they kind of have an idea that they're going to be building towards three on three. Is that what the expectation you had was? Tony, you always knew the plan would be three on three. Yeah, it would be three on three.
0: Although as we move forward, I was really unsure who the three would be. Right. This moment, I think, uh, and we talk about important moments in WCW. This was a very important moment. This is a moment where, uh, they tuned in to see our program and all of a sudden what in the world is going on? It looked like what Eric wanted it to look like a guy on his own walking out of another company through the crowd to this company. And that started, I I really think people going back and forth wanting to know even more than, than Luger showing up when he showed up on the very first nitro. uh, I think this one was more, and and I'm not saying that one is a bigger star than the other, but the guy, because he walked in on the crowd and through the crowd, I think this started, fans going back and forth between the two shows. I think it helped out both shows. It it helped out both promotions uh, in
1: hindsight. No doubt about it. I mean, it was, it was the match that set the business on fire for sure. And, and Scott Hall has given credit over the years to your broadcast partner that night, Larry Zabisco, with giving him the idea of coming through the crowd to really make it look like he was coming from the outside of WCW as opposed to walking down the ramp. Do you remember that being a Larry Zabisco idea? Yeah. Larry had a lot of great ideas, man. Uh, Larry, uh, Larry was a sharp and still is
0: a sharp guy, I'm sure, although he's probably an old fuck right now uh but uh, Larry had a lot of good ideas and uh and people would play off of him a lot and he would give Larry was not the the type of guy that would go around and uh rest uh get in people's ear and come up with 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 stuff if you ask him if you approached him, Larry would give you uh, tell you what he thought uh not only was he a good announcer, he knew the business hey because. To me, if I go back through the years of pro wrestling and some of the great angles that were ever in pro wrestling, to me, one of the great angles ever was Larry Zabisco against Bruno San Martino. Sure. It is tremendous. If you go back and watch that, it's one of my favorite angles of all time. So Larry was involved in some big stuff, right, throughout his career. So he was a guy that you respected uh, and came up with some very, very good stuff.
1: Well, I, uh, I think everybody is ready for us to talk about the formation of the NWO, but unfortunately we're going to circle back and do that another Mm -hmm. time, but we will kind of briefly lay the groundwork here. Scott Hall on that first night in Nitro is talking about billionaire Ted and Nacho man and wanting to go to war. And so. You know, billionaire Ted and Nacho man were obviously things that were never said on WCW. They were always said on the WWF. He says the word dirt sheets in here, I believe. Um, so it starts to look and feel very much like a hostile takeover. And that's the way they would even promote it. Um, the following week on June 3rd, at the end of nitro Scott hall, who had just debuted the previous week comes out to the announcer's table where Bobby Heenan and Eric Bischoff are sitting and hall tells Bischoff, you started it. We're going to finish it. Sting comes out. And, uh, once sting is out there, uh, they start to go back and forth. And then Hall says he has a big surprise for next week and holds his hand over his head. Uh, Of course, the following week, that means there's the debut of Kevin Nash. Uh, Kevin Nash cuts a promo. Um, They're going back and forth with Eric. What's going on backstage? At this point, You know we're obviously building towards a a six-man. We know for sure that Sting is going to be on one side based on the interaction here. We know on the other side. We've got Kevin Nash and Scott Hall. And in that promo that Kevin Nash does, he says something along the lines of you ain't got enough guys off a Dallas machine to get a team. Yeah. Where's Hogan? Where's Hogan doing another episode of blunder in paradise. Where's the macho man doing some slim Jim commercial. Hey, we're here. So at this point it starts to feel like, Hey, it might be sting macho man and Hulk Hogan against Scott Hall, Kevin Nash, and a third person. But as we're in mid-June, you know, by, say, the Great American Bash, did you start to have an idea of how these teams would shake out? No. I, I think they tried their best.
0: Well, I know they tried their best backstage to to keep the announce crew, uh, announcers out of the loop on that. And keep in mind, now, I was not doing WCW Monday Nitro back then. Right. Uh, so I was just doing WCW Saturday night in the pay-per-views. But, uh, I know Eric had in mind what he wanted to do, but like everything else in WCW, everything was fluid and everything was kind of up for uh, debate and up for speculation. Uh, and really after, uh, Kevin Nash arrived, I thought it could have been anybody. I thought it could have been someone else from the WWF coming over. Uh, and, and I even thought it could have been, it could have been anybody, uh, Moving from WCW to to join this, the outsiders, if you will. So,
1: well, isn't it there, funny that what a time in the business it was, where people within the business aren't sure what's going to happen, and it creates speculation and the game of telephone amongst the wrestlers, where guys in the WWF are looking around wondering is somebody from here going to jump, kind of like Lex Luger did in the middle of the night, uh, and and guys in WCW are wondering. Who's going to be partnered with them? Is somebody new coming in? Nobody really knows for sure. This doesn't happen these days because there's not that competitive juice between two major companies right now, and it never really happened prior to this. Is Eric Bischoff to credit with really pushing the envelope here? No
0: question, he was working the boys, which you kind of had to do uh, to try to make things real. You know, you worked the crowd, you worked the program. But now you're working the boys, and so that brings up a lot of uh, speculation. The boys were the guys who fed the dirt sheets, and they didn't know what was going on. So everybody was kind of taken off guard for this.
1: I'm glad so, you yeah. said that. I, I want your opinion on this. Ric Flair and Bruce Pritchard and, and a handful of other guys I've heard over the years say they didn't like working the boys, and anytime somebody was working the boys, they thought it was bullshit and not cool. But you kind of indicated right there that, hey, if you know that it's what's best for business, you don't necessarily owe the boys an explanation for everything you're doing. You owe them clear direction on what they're doing. But if it doesn't affect them, you don't have to necessarily disclose it. I mean, that's the way traditional business works. But it feels like in wrestling, everybody feels like they're owed some sort of explanation as to what's going on. Where do where do you fall on that? No, they're not. Uh, and I was never, I was all, never in the,
0: uh, there were a lot of things kept away from me and sometimes I didn't like it because I thought that maybe, uh, I needed to know something as part of my job. And that's something we can get into uh, as we move on. But working the boys when it worked was spectacular. And this was one of the times, uh, I guess going back and, and a guy like Rick and a guy like Bruce Pritchard going back and looking at it right now think oh we should have known everything no you didn't need to know everything right and it worked back then because the more listen it's like any other thing it's like any other thing the more people are pulled into a secret the more chance it is to get out there and someone know it and you know you know i'm going to i'm going to shit on the dirt sheets again but they claimed that they really did not expose the business bullshit they didn't and if it got out there from the boys to the dirt sheets and the Dirt Sheets put it out there, then their business was exposed, what they were going to do. So uh, I think it was a good thing to to work the boys. I really do.
1: So six days after uh, Nash makes his debut, they have this Great American Bash pay-per-view. And behind the scenes, the WWF has been really putting the screws to WCW. So Bischoff has to be very clear about what he says or doesn't say. And on camera, he says, those two guys, we know who they are. And... He's very careful with his wording here. And he asks if these guys are going to be able to take on a WCW team and bash at the beach hall says I'm free. And then point blank on camera asks if either man is working for the WWF and they both say no, now this is in response to some behind the scenes litigation that we'll get into another time, but they needed to state clearly for the record that they are not WWF employees, which is so far what they were certainly trying to show. Do you feel like the denial here hurt the angle at all? I, I know that they were trying to pull the wool over everybody's eyes and pretend that this was a hostile takeover and that they're the outsiders and that they're they're from up north and they're here to take over. But even though they state clearly for the record here, I don't think the angle was hurt one bit, do you? No, it was not hurt
0: one bit. It's it. They had to do this, and uh, it was still uh, because you kind of – I don't think you need to drill down on, on everything that's said during a promo to try to dissect it uh, to make ch- to it become a great promo or not. Right. It didn't hurt it at all. I mean, it's still
1: the, the fans were still wondering who's next, so to speak, uh, regardless of how, what they said. Great American Bash, of course. Uh, the end of that promo is where Kevin Nash gives the jackknife power bomb to Eric Bischoff. Uh, What did the office and the boys think of Eric volunteering to take that bump? And let's keep in mind, this happened in June of 96, more than a year before Stone Cold Steve Austin would give a stunner to Vince McMahon. I know everybody wants to give all the credit to Vince McMahon and Stone Cold for that, but that happened in the fall of 1997. We're in June of 96 here, and Bischoff has taken a jackknife. Uh, How was it received amongst the boys and the office for... Uh, the, the man in charge to take a bump like this. Well, uh, I
0: think, uh, many of us thought it was a pretty damn good angle. There was a faction that thought that Eric was putting too much emphasis on himself, which is natural. E-
1: even by this point. Yeah. That's amazing to me because if you're trying to play on the reality angle and you're trying to get smart fans to kind of question themselves as to, Hey, I know wrestling is a wink and a nod, but this mm-hmm. I mean, that's certainly what they were going for is, is for you to suspend disbelief here. And if they're, if everybody watching those smart fans know, Hey, Eric Bischoff may be the announcer quote unquote, but he's really running the show. Yeah. It added a level of realism as a fan. It's called the hook. Yeah. Something that Magnum TA and I talked about
0: for years. Uh, Magnum was a big wrestling fan as I was. Uh, he was in Virginia. I lived in Virginia. We watched the same programs. We always thought, we talked about this, you watched a wrestling event and you thought, that's bullshit, eh, that's bullshit, that's bullshit, but that, that's real, and that was the hook that kept you coming back, and that was one of the hooks, it was real, but sometimes ego plays more into this than anything else backstage, and I guess maybe egos were bruised, or they felt that Eric, uh, and I'm not saying everybody did this, but a lot of people were thinking that Eric put too much emphasis on himself. Uh, and of course now they even f- thought more of that moving forward. But, uh, uh, so it was kind of a mixed reaction. I think members of, of the office liked it. You know, Eric was, uh, Eric was a difficult guy to work for, but he was a good boss in many ways. And he had, uh, he, I mean, he brought Hulk Hogan in for crying out loud. He did things that the other people he talked about doing. So, Uh, we, I think most of us were kind of behind it, but there were some that were, yeah. So the next
1: next day, uh, on nitro, we see a confirmation of who this WCW team will be made up of. Uh, we know for sure at this point that we're going to have Randy Savage, Lex Luger and sting, and that they're going to be taking on the outsiders and a third man at the bash of the beach pay-per-view. Uh, and the outsiders were not on that nitro. So. A day after jackknifing Eric Bischoff, they're not on Nitro, which some people would question. But I think it's kind of smart because it makes people wonder, you know, are they regular contracted performers? Or are you not sure when they're going to show up? I mean, it adds another level. Uh, the following week on Nitro, we see our heroes, Sting and Lex Luger, defending their World Tag Team titles in a triple threat match against the Steiner Brothers and Harlem Heat. And here's where we see Hall and Nash come through the crowd carrying baseball bats. This, of course offers a distraction when the cops interfere, uh, and uh, somehow Booker T manages to roll up Luger for the pin, and now the Harlem Heat are the tag champions, and the outsiders have cost that championship run for both Sting and Lex Luger. Uh, You said on commentary here that you were scared to death. Uh, What was the reaction in the crowd that night, uh, or were you just trying to be over the top? Over the top. Okay. Yeah. Don't read too much into what I say. I don't usually, and neither do our listeners, <laughs> uh, which is why you should go ahead and pick up a t-shirt from pro dot forward slash WHW. Don't read too much into what he says, but do right. believe him when he says he's going to call because you call everybody who picks up a shirt, right, Tony? Yes,
0: I really do. Boy, we've had a run on the store recently, so I'm a little bit behind. I was amazed to see how many that we, uh, that we had sold in the month of June. And I appreciate that based on what you just said, as we're going into this talk about pro wrestling tees, I think a new shirt should say, go fuck yourself, Conrad. Sure. Just to be honest with you. So, um, but we have some great shirts there, wonderful shirts and great people who I have called and talked to. And, uh, some are want to keep me on the phone for a long time, which is fine. Let's talk it out. It's kind of like a, a phone conversation that we're having that you could have with me live uh, coming up in Dallas on Sunday, the, the 9th of July, uh, at three Links. But I love talking to people, love connecting with everybody. Listen, anybody who's ever talked to me, and this, Conrad, this is a shoot, okay? I know how you think of me sometimes. Everybody who's talked to me says that that I'm very, very nice to them and very mm-hmm. personable to them mm-hmm. because it is a shoot I am. I appreciate everything they've done. I appreciate wrestling fans. And the reason I appreciate wrestling fans is that, damn it, I was one at one time. And I guess I am now, but back before I got into the business, I was. So I know where they're coming from. I know how passionate you can be about the business, how much you can love the business. You love the business. We all do. So I appreciate that. And I appreciate you buying a shirt. So I'm going to make time for you. Uh, I, want to let er- I want to let everybody know that there have been uh, there's some international calls that I have yet to make. And for some reason, I can't get through to Australia. I don't know why that is. And I've tried. Uh, I've got a, a person from Germany. I've got a call. Uh, and I've got a couple of people from England I've got a call. I've made a call to Australia. But there's one guy from Australia, Jared, who I do want to call. Jared, I know you listen every week, and I appreciate it. Uh,
1: Tony, but- Tony, we're trying to sell T-shirts, not do fucking misconnections. Can you talk about the goddamn T-shirts for a minute?
0: Where, where are we? Oh, Yes. That's ProWrestlingTees.com forward slash WHW.
1: <laughs> Go check out the Hot right, Tag T-shirt, man. I love this yeah. Hot Tag T-shirt. I'm a big fan of the Klondike. That's a little old school action. The Syracuse Slapdick School of Journalism. That's an oldie but a goodie. But maybe my new favorite, and I absolutely love this, Damn I Am Good. In honor of our Four Horsemen episode, Ole Anderson sported this shirt in the 80s, and now you can in 2017. A really popular one around my house these days is Flair hit it first. Uh, I even heard about somebody ordering that for their mom because they know that back in the day, Flair tagged their mom. So there you go. Uh, go check out all these shirts at pro forward slash WHW and don't forget Bill's glass bottom boat ride tours. This is hands down my favorite shirt. I wear it around the house all the time. Nobody has any idea what it is, but you know, because you listen to this show And if you want Tony to ramble on and lose sight of what he was talking about and just talk your fucking ear off because he's lonely and he hates his (laughs) life, please buy a shirt, (laughs) ProWrestlingTees.com (laughs) forward (laughs) slash (laughs) WHW. This episode of what happened when Monday brought to you by wrestling with regret on YouTube
0: every week. Wrestling personality, Brian Zane takes a humorous look at the strangest and silliest things in the world of professional wrestling storylines to characters, television, pay-per-view, movies, video games, and everything in between, along with his reviews on wrestling's worst. I hope we're not part of that. Brian offers his top eight countdowns, breaking news editorials, weekly Raw and SmackDown reviews, video game live streams, and even makes, you ready for this, recipes out of old wrestling cookbooks. I hope there's nothing in there from the Wild Samoans. You'll even get an inside look, an inside look, at Brian's Managerial Antics on the independent scene. For more than four years running, Wrestling With Regret has been one of the leading independently run wrestling channels on YouTube. Check it out today. See what more than 180,000
1: subscribers are talking about. Search for Wrestling With Regret. That's regret with a W. So let's talk about uh, the next show, the kind of go-home show, they call it, on Nitro. It's July 1st. Uh, and about halfway through the show, we see hall and Nash come through the crowd this time they're carrying popcorn and they're showing, they have tickets that they belong there and they're sitting ringside. Uh, and of course, a little while later, somehow very mysteriously, they have microphones and they're walking through the crowd back to the announcer's table. Uh, and it sounds like you can even hear Kevin Nash drop an F bomb. Uh, and then several wrestlers come out, uh, and hall and Nash are then uh, escorted out of the arena. Um, So at this point to build excitement for the pay-per-view, they've kind of went a different way with this. There's been no physical, you know, altercation on the go home show to build to this. And the biggest physicality involved so far was the, the jackknife power bomb on Eric Bischoff. How do you think that the build here for this match and this angle was done so far? I thought it was great. I, you don't need physicality, uh,
0: to build to a big angle. Some of the great angles, uh, in, in, uh, in wrestling were just based on guys talking, going face to face, and you want to see them finally go at it on the big blow off. And this is how, this is one of the, it's one of the old school th- ways things was built. Hey, I, I know I'm an old curmudgeon. I know I'm old school, but I'm going to take you back to Ric Flair and Blackjack Mulligan's big angle back in 1978. Flair and Mulligan never touched each other, never touched each other. They were in six-man tag teams against each other, and every time Blackjack would tag in, Flair would tag out. Flair completely ran from him. So you didn't get to see him touch until the big payoff, and that's kind of what this was done. So I thought it was done correctly. You know, I, again, as we move forward, there were too many combinations. You saw too many guys go up against each other till everybody had seen everything. Now, you, you haven't seen this yet unless you pay for it on the Bash of the Beach. So I was in favor of it. And guess what? I think I'm right.
1: Well, I can't argue. Um, let's talk, let's talk about, about, let's talk about the uh, actual card that night. We had a dark match with Jim powers and Hugh Morris. What's your favorite Jim powers match, Tony? Uh, the one with Hugh Morris, because it was dark. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. How do you like your Jim powers matches? Dark. Uh, in the, that, I mean, that that's Jim, the Jim was right okay. There. Jim was, he was a good guy. I'm, uh, these are jokes. You quit apologizing. <laughs> uh, yeah. first match on the line, yeah,
0: but it's going to get out there on fucking line. You know, Meltzer, who's told enough lies about me now to, uh, to fill up a glass bottom boat. It's going to get out there online that Tony Schiavone doesn't like
1: Jim powers. Okay. So wait, that's wait. not true. Are you but saying the it, best, best matches were dark. Is it, it sounds like you just said that Dave Meltzer takes a dump on glass coffee tables.
0: No, Dave Meltzer is the dump on glass coffee table.
1: Oh, my. Let's move along. Uh, first match on the card. We I shouldn't have said that. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said that. Yeah, fuck it. Keep going. <laughs> the Steiner <laughs> brothers beat Harlem Heat by DQ. So yeah. the Harlem Heat retain the tag titles. They only get about five minutes. So it feels like an okay match, but fairly rushed. Uh, somewhere in here, Rick uses a bulldog off the top rope on Stevie Ray when Colonel Parker goes to interfere. Uh, but this time Rick blocks him and gets the cane. So of course, sister Sherry jumps on his back and, uh, that earns the DQ Sherry and Parker tease that they're going to go at it when Sherry grabs Parker in a lip lock. Uh, and they're going back and forth as a part of a storyline that was abruptly dropped earlier in the year when Sherry was fired one star in the observer, uh, why would catch everybody up and remind them of why Sherry was fired and how she was brought back here? Well, uh, she was fired because Sherry had
0: problems. She had uh, a lot of emotional problems and, and drug problems too. And, uh, so when you have those, you're not really dependable, uh, how she was brought back. I don't know, I guess bygones or bygones. Have you heard something different?
1: No, I, I didn't. I yeah. don't know any sort of rumor in any window. I just know that yeah. she was always well liked, but kind of, uh, a yeah. sympathetic figure in that she yeah. seemingly had some problems that everybody was pulling for, her, but she had, Trouble keeping it together at different times.
0: You're exactly, you You hit the nail on the head and that's exactly right. But sometimes there's more rumor and innuendo out there that I haven't heard about, but it was pretty apparent. Again, sympathetic figure, one of the great workers ever as a female. I mean, she would do a lot of shit. We've seen some good stuff uh, that we've talked about from Sherry, uh, but she had some problems uh, and uh, she had to get her life together before she could be depended on to work full time. A lot of times... You know, when you have a drug problem or you have an alcohol problem, it's not necessarily that you can't perform. It's the fact that you just don't show up to perform. Right. Uh, and you're not dependable. So, uh, not to say that she wasn't, but that all came into play with her. Uh, and it's, it's hers is a sad story because she was, she was a talented girl. I think you would agree.
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, where were you at on Sherry? Did you spend much time in her makeup chair? No, I did not because
0: she was always she always was like moving moving from one place to the other. Hello, Mr. Ass. How you doing, Mr. Ass? Fine, Sherry. I'm I'm fine. Uh but uh no, she wasn't I didn't flirt with her or <clears throat> I didn't talk to her like I did the other girls.
1: Because you like blondes or because Ric Flair said she would wear your ass out. Well, I would I wouldn't have mind having my ass worn out, but uh By Tom Zink or
0: what, wait wait a minute. Rick flair said she would wear your ass out. Where does that story come from? Where did you pull that story out of your ass?
1: So Bobby Walker pinned Billy Kidman in two minutes with a spearhead off the top rope, uh, Walker nearly fell off the top rope here and, uh, Meltzer would write, both guys would work very hard and did nice high spots while they were in there. Why do we have a two minute match here? Uh, on a pay-per-view. And, and as you answer that, I want to hear all about your favorite memories of working with hard work, Bobby Walker. <laughs> I can't, <laughs> I don't,
0: oh, I'm going to get so much shit about this. <laughs> okay. Why? Girls. I don't remember hard work, Bobby Walker. Yes, you do. You don't remember. No. Come on. Don't. Oh, hit me in the head. I just, I'm a old fuck. I don't know.
1: Uh, I don't know. Uh, he's, let let me tell you this. He's the, maybe this will ring a bell. He's the nephew of Thunderbolt Patterson. Okay. All right. He sued with Sonny Ono and a hard body Harrison. Exactly. And he won a discrimination lawsuit and a a pile of money. Uh Uh-huh. He was managed by Teddy Long. Right. Any of this ringing a bell?
0: Yeah, it is because I was deposed in, in one of these things.
1: Oh, so you don't want to say anything because you don't want to get sued again?
0: Well, I, would, I I didn't get sued. I was just deposed in one of these things, and I'm not going to say anything uh, about it. Uh, these were dark matches, right?
1: These weren't pay per view that, matches. That's racist. Uh, just just because. <laughs> okay, these were these are African American matches. They're not no, dark. Calm down. No,
0: God, my, boy, you are trying to fuck me over in this paper and this you hear that? You're trying to fuck me over. Well, okay, stop it. So, anyway, um, no.
1: Wasn't this a match that was not on the pay-per-view? I mean, maybe.
0: Okay. It wasn't on the pay-per-view.
1: No, it's not. The the show opens. Okay. There's 14 matches here, and I just want... If we don't talk about Bobby Walker right now, when the fuck are we going to talk about him? Why do we have to talk about him? Okay, let's move on. on. Let's move on, then. Okay you uh, he worked hard rock and roll express in 1996 in WCW. I had no memory of this. They worked a two minute dark match here, Ricky Morton and Robert Gibson against fire and ice. That's Scott Norton and ice train. Um, two of these fellows here are probably locker room favorites. Uh, who are the other two? <laughs> uh, <laughs> the other two would be, but <laughs> being uh, fire and ice, <laughs> I don't really remember. <laughs> I got you with that one. I got you with that one. I don't really remember <laughs> anything about Rock and Roll Express in 1996. Can you catch no. us up about, you know, this no. run and why it didn't work out? Is this it feels like something that Bischoff would have just shit on right away as being too yeah. southern for him. That's exactly what it was. Too southern for
0: him. And let's face it, Ricky and Robert have been the Rock and Roll Express for 10 years by this time in mainstream even before back then. So, uh, Eric was tired of the gimmick. And
1: Eric was tired of everything Southern, which was wrong, so, fucking wrong. So let's process uh, our fifth and final dark match here. It's Eddie Guerrero versus Lord Steven Regal. You've got two of the greatest performers of all time, and they get three minutes and thirty-eight seconds. Uh, Regal loses by schoolboy. They only get half a star. So let's run through the dark matches here so far. We've got okay, the these Steiner, are matches that are not on, not pay-per-view. on pay per view. The Steiner Brothers, Harlem Heat. Billy Kidman, The Rock and Roll Express, Eddie Guerrero, and Steven Regal were not on the pay per view. No. Now, John Tenta, Jim Duggan, The Public Enemy, Joe Gomez, Mongo, Disco Inferno, Diamondells Page, mm-hmm. Big Bubba, mm-hmm. The Taskmaster, I'm just naming guys that are on there. You're, you're trying to put Diamond Dallas Page in the same group as Joe Gomez. Is that what you're trying to do? No, I was just listing names of people who are oh, on the show. Okay. Right. But I'm just right. saying I find it interesting that a few years prior to this, maybe several, the Rock and Roll Express were main eventing all over the world. A few years after this, Eddie Guerrero will be world champ. Lord Steven Regal has probably always been regarded as being one of the very best performers in the history of the business. Billy Kidman would go on to a bigger push. The Steiner brothers had been and would be, again, main events uh, Harlem heat. I mean, Booker T holy shit. One of the yeah. all time greats, these guys, none of them on the pay-per-view, but we've got room right. for some of these others. I don't understand the rhyme or reason here. Do you there's know? None. there's Okay. No, I, I don't either. And it's pretty apparent because you talk about Eddie Guerrero and
0: Steve Regal going what? Two and a half minutes.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, all these it's... early matches are just a handful of minutes. You've got four right. minutes for Jim powers and Hugh Morris process that four minutes for that. Now, Eddie Guerrero and Steven Regal get three minutes and 38 seconds. The Rock and Roll Express get two minutes and eight seconds. How is that possible? Well,
0: they, want, they, they put too many, too many matches in the, in the uh, matches not shown on the pay-per-view. Put too many in there. Uh, and we had a pregame show, if you'll recall, on, uh, that was sent out to all the uh, satellite providers and cable providers that you could tune in. It was kind of a countdown to the show. And I guess this was to get the crowd whipped into a frenzy to get ready to go. You always try to put a dark match or two to get the crowd into it before things started. But this was too many. And you're right. To me, okay, to me, not putting Steve Regal or Eddie Guerrero on the pay-per-view and putting Joe Gomez on the pay-per-view, but th- somebody f- should
1: be – Somebody should be beaten with a fucking stick. That was one of my follow-up questions. Steve McMichael and Joe Gomez make the pay-per-view, but Eddie Guerrero and, and Lord Stephen Regal do not. Can you give me two reasons why?
0: Maybe it's because they wanted to uh, put
1: Deborah. Uh, Deborah Mc- oh, thank you. <laughs> I was getting to that. Well, uh, how... When we first started this show at the beginning of the year, anytime I started a story about WCW, you would sidebar about your love of Deborah McMichael's breasts. Yeah, right, and now right. here we are six months later, and I'm I'm teeing up Deborah boob yeah. stuff, and you're just missing it. Are, are we so Lego. far past boobs, and we're now into Klondike Bill public dumps? No, no. I just don't want to the listeners out there to get the impression that that I'm a creepy old bastard. Well, too late. So let's talk about the actual pay per view itself. When the show comes on the air, we're treated to a little bit of a video package. And then we go to you three guys. And if you're listening and you haven't seen this show in a while, I really encourage you to go check this out. You don't have to watch the whole show. Just see the very beginning of this, because I need you to see what exactly is happening here. Uh, This slapdick on the other end of this broadcast right now is wearing a double-breasted jacket. Uh, It's blue, and it's clearly dusty roads it's not yours it's about four sizes too big the sleeves are so long they're covering up your fingers uh it looks like you're wearing daddy's jacket you have on gray pants with your blue jacket uh and so of course when i think of gray slacks and a blue double-breasted blazer that's four sizes too big i'm like you know how we can really class this up let's put on a red fucking cummerbund no we're not in a tuxedo but we're a slap dick and apparently didn't pack the right shit. Uh, so we have a red cummerbund and a red bow tie. What, how I'm with Tony. I'm now with Eric Bischoff. WCW going out of business was your fucking fault. If you had any fashion sense or you could find, uh, if you even knew a guy named Jim, much less could find one, maybe the company would still be here.
0: All right. Hold on. Hold on a second. The family was with me during this entire trip. All the kids and Lois. Lois let you leave the house dressed like this. Lois dressed me. Oh God. She was, she was in the hotel across the street. She dressed my ass. She said, that's going to look good. Where did the jacket come from? Did you borrow that from dusty? I, 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 I think I still have that jacket. I think as a matter of fact, I would fill that jacket
1: out here in 2017. But
0: why are you worried about the way I look?
1: Because I needed content to make fun of today. And when I turned it on, I was trying to take notes. And once I saw what you were wearing, I just put my my pen and paper aside and I said, show made. We've got it. Dave Silva, if you're listening, I need, of course you're listening. I need you to Photoshop this version of Tony Schiavone with the gray slacks and the blue double-breasted blazer that belongs to Dusty Rhodes and a red fucking cummerbund and bow tie in every Photoshop for like a month. Let's put... Let's put this Tony everywhere. Like where in the world is Carmen San Diego? Okay. So why, how about this for a response? I was dressing up for Deborah. Well, it's no, it's no wonder you never got them guts. If that was the way you would try to dress up for, because
0: I, I wish that night, if you watch that,
1: if you can look past
0: Joe fucking Gomez being in the ring that night, I wish I was the little
1: dog. I was going to say, do you think the dog would watch?
0: Yeah, being held up against her bosoms, all nice and warm. How do you know they're warm? That's, why wouldn't they be? You think they're they're cold? You think they're brittle? You think they're... No, they got to be nice and warm. And didn't we do a good job of having her dress and accentuate those boobs?
1: Now, no, the, we did not. I was going to say, I don't think you had her dress because it's clear from looking at the way you're dressed that nobody was paying any attention to what people were wearing. It was just your well, left good, to your own device. Because the idea is to pay attention to the damn matches, you I, stupid son of a bitch. i tell you what, that men's warehouse commercial was full of <laughs> shit. I did not love the way you looked. <laughs> Fuck that guy. All right. So the first match, I can't wait to see you shit on this. This was a phenomenal match. It just goes over fifteen minutes. We've got Rey Mysterio Junior. Uh in, in one of the to me, the the best Rey Mysterio Jr. stuff was like ninety five to, you know, early ninety eight. That run right there is just outstanding. We're right smack dab in the middle here for Rey Mysterio psychosis. Uh, they start with some fun mat wrestling, and then they're doing just one high spot after another, just crazy over the top stuff. You've really got to see, including a leg drop off the top to the floor, which just sounds ridiculous. Uh, but they did it and, and they're doing so many big moves here that we can't even recap them all. Hurricane Rana's springboards. A lot of this stuff you've seen before now, but you've probably still not seen it as executed as flawlessly as it is here, including there was a spot on the top turnbuckle where it looks like they're going to go for some sort of a razor's edge, but it is reversed, uh, into a hurricane Rana for the pin. It's outstanding. Uh, it gets four and three quarter stars in the observer. I loved it. Everybody in my house this week thought it was the best match on the card, but you hate anybody who is Hispanic no. or wears a mask.
0: No, I do not. I, listen, I, I, I do not. Okay? No, you, you've been very clear. I, what, I hate, what I hate is one high fucking high spot after another high spot after another high spot that means freaking nothing. You got to sell to make the match. That's what I hate. But this match, to me, we brought in Mike Tanay to commentate because Mike followed Lucha Libre Wrestling. He was really big in all this stuff. And Mike, this is to me, this is the beginning of of Rey Mysterio being a big star for us, Uh, because Mike talked about the huracanada, he talked about the top rope plancha, and he, he gave us some terms and and I thought this was a a spectacular match. Rey Mysterio was spectacular, and you can see why. That Ray Mysterio Jr. had knee problems just watching this match throughout his career. If he would do something like this every night.
1: It, what are you shaking your head about? What, no, I'm just thought? saying it's 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 amazing to me that Ray Mysterio can even walk now. You yeah. Know, when you see I know. I all, agree. All the stuff that he was doing consistently and, and flawlessly. By yeah. the way, you know, I know that we've talked a lot about Bobby Heenan being one of the greatest announcers of all time, but certainly the greatest manager of all time, mm-hmm. at least in my world view but he's burying the shit out of this. He's referring to Ray as the original San Diego chicken. Uh, Mm -hmm. he's saying that Ray has hair like Demi Moore because she had just shaved her head for GI Jane. And that Mm -hmm. psychosis has hair like Peg Bundy. Uh, Mm -hmm. he's kind of mocking the names of the moves. Was there any heat or, or was this out of direction of somebody or did Bobby just not get this type of style? I, I, well,
0: it was kind of new to all of us, but it was Bobby being Bobby and being entertaining. Uh, you think he was burying the wrestlers by being funny like that?
1: Well, I mean, I think when you're when you've got young guys on a card who are kind of unknown to the audience and they don't have, you know, if he's doing this with Hulk Hogan, I get it, right? Because yeah, Hogan's right. established. And but with Mysterio and Psychosis mocking their hair and comparing their hairdos to women, and um, yeah. when they're they're already fighting an uphill battle because you've got the lead announcer who doesn't like Hispanic people or people who wear masks, uh, and. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I know you like Dave Silva. I think he said he's my one. I'm done now. Um, during the match, you guys kept talking about Bischoff being missing and wondering if he had been taken hostage or what happened to him. What was the thinking there? Did you already know at that point he was going to be involved as a heel or was it just trying to speculate? We were just trying to
0: speculate and trying to have another storyline going forward. In reality, I'm not so sure that that was an important storyline at that time. Uh, but I, I, I think we did a lot of the matches a disservice by continuing to talk about where's Bischoff, uh, and probably did disservice even to this one, to this match, uh, going back to Bobby Heenan and defending what Bobby was saying, Bobby got his lines in to be Bobby Heenan. But if you listen to that whole match, Bobby did a good job of, uh. I thought putting over these guys and these spectacular moves uh, that they were doing. Are you, are you uh, echoing some dirt sheet commentary about this, about this match that they didn't like what Heenan said, that they thought that Heenan buried this match? Is that you talking or is that somebody else? Some other shithead talking?
1: Uh, both. Okay. I'm going to co-sign it, but, but don't get me wrong. I like when, when Heenan buries made guys and they're clearly a heel, but here He's picking on both guys. We don't really have clear-cut, defined roles of this guy's a heel, this guy's a babyface. You know, yeah. sure, Mysterio may have been the fan favorite, but what did my what did Psychosis do at this point to be a heel? It yeah. just feels like he could have. I don't know. It doesn't yeah. feel like it added to the match. It felt like it took away. We're making these guys are putting on a fucking clinic. It's one of the best matches. Uh, of, of, of the show, certainly the best match of the show. And we're talking about their haircuts and how silly they are. And and we're making, and we're calling the names of the moves, something else. I don't know. Right. It's just, okay. I got you. I got you. Mr. I love Japanese Mexican wrestling guy. No. How about this? I appreciate when people put forth effort and when they're doing something, nobody else can. I don't shit on it because I can't do it. And that's what okay. happened there. Okay. All right. Uh, let's talk about something else that we can argue about. It's me and Jean interviewing the United States champion Conan. Uh, and they're talking about his match that will be later against Ric Flair. Gene says that Conan just wrestled the night before in Mexico. And at this point, of course, Conan did have the benefit of pulling double duty, uh, representing WCW below the border and representing AAA above the border. Uh, and even in the promo here, Gene asked what the move was that Mysterio used to win the match. Uh, and he said that psychosis went for Splash Mountain and then Mysterio turns it into a Frankensteiner. I find that hilarious that they asked another performer that, but it's fun. Uh, in the promo, he says that, uh, if your manager gets in the match, uh, he'll cripple him. If a woman gets in, he'll clothesline him. If the football player gets in, he'll chop block him. Uh, and then he steals a page from Tito Santana and says, Arriba, Mexico. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what'd you think of, of this version of Conan? Conan went through a couple of different iterations in WCW. Uh, this is before we get the kind of gangsta NWO LWO version. What did you think of this version of Conan and WCW?
0: I thought Conan was a great performer and, and always gave a good interview. When I first saw Conan years and years ago on a WCW Saturday night, he had a mask, and he did some things that were really cool. I thought he was a, a very good performer, and I thought this was one of, and I know you can pick them all apart by thinking it's funny for an announcer to ask uh, a talent what type of move that was, but I think it's one of what to me was one of the most entertaining parts of this whole show was Gene Okerlund's interviews during the course of this uh, bash of the beach gene did a phenomenal job backstage for us and conan was a pretty good talker and the fact that he had wrestled in mexico and he had been wrestling in the united states just kind of made him more legitimate as a us heavyweight champion i thought
1: so next up we've got uh, john tenta coming out with half his head shaved mm-hmm. uh this is quite a look that he's sporting here. He's got half a beard and half his hair. Um, at this point he shaves his beard, but he leaves half the hair. Were you ever in public with John Tenta when he's got half a mullet, right? Right down the side of the head.
0: No, no, I was not, but I've been in public with John Tenta and I don't think his hairdo mattered to someone that size.
1: No, I'm not saying that. I'm just wondering what type of strange looks you get when you see a guy (laughs) who legitimately has fifty percent of his hair and not like Hulk Hogan where the front's missing, like left to right, half of it is gone. I don't know. I mean only in WCW do you see this, but maybe the the best part of this show, and I think so many people overlook this when they talk about it, this is a Carson City silver dollar match. Where they take a sock and they fill it with coins and they put it on the top of a high pole. And when I watched this with my daughter this week, she looked at me and says, dad, neither one of these guys are going to be able to climb that pole. Yes.
0: Your, your daughter, your, your daughter was absolutely right. Because when that pole was constructed right before that match, we all looked at each other and said, neither one of those fat asses is going to be able to climb that pole. That poll was too far in the air for anybody. It's just one of those, it's one of those miscommunication things that, that was the hallmark of WCW. Why in the world would they put a poll that high? And if they put a poll that high, why in the world wouldn't they? the? I'll bet you anything that when Jimmy Hart and Tenta and Big Bubba all walk out and see the poll that high and see the Carson City Silver Dollars on top, I'll bet you that was the first time they even saw that, that poll. If so, you're going to do something like that, you better you better. – first of all, you need to lower the pole, and second of all, you need to bring the guys out and say, here's what it looks like. So that was a – that was a. to me, that was a – one of those great WCW clusterfucks.
1: Did Klondike like, Bill make the pole? I, I, yes, he did. Do you think it's a situation where nobody wanted Klondike Bill's pole? There's a lot of people out there, and this is back in the day, that really
0: wanted his pole. Uh, but at that time, no one really seemed to argue with it. They go to Klondike bill and bill says, yeah. And they said, bill, build us a pole. And bill said, can I get any pussy out of it? And they say, well, no. He said, okay, I'll build the pole. And he built a pole, but they didn't
1: give him any guidance on building a pole. So rather than ask specifics, like how tall, how big, how do you want it attached? He would go straight for can I get some nappy dugout? right? Well, I see, I see how this happens now.
0: I mean he's was I mean if if there's there's any question on this podcast through the years if there's anybody a bigger pervert than Bill, I don't know who that was. Tony Schiavone. No, not even close, just because I, just because I like Deborah's boobs and I'm in love with Medusa. And, in love uh, with boy we're, we're escalating things okay uh, I've always been in love with Medusa and j- I doesn't mean I'm a pervert I just so, like beautiful women so this comes and I <laughs> is there anything wrong with liking beautiful women no okay thank you very much for agreeing with me all right can we move on I thought uh, I thought Terry Terry Reynolds was a gorgeous woman too
1: <laughs> <laughs> you Fucking early onset Alzheimer's. We're not talking about Terry Ronalds. <laughs> Let's stay focused, you old perv. I'm just uh, so sorry. this this poll, um, <laughs> this Carson City silver dollar. Yeah, this to me sounds like a dusty idea. Yeah, it does. But okay,
0: you have to admit that the fans popped when Tenta hit Bubba with the silver dollars.
1: Now, here's what I'm trying they to illustrate. They did pop.
0: The fans did pop.
1: I'm not arguing Go back that. and
0: watch that thing.
1: I'm just saying, there is a person in wrestling who gets hit with the on a pole jokes all the time. Mr. Vince Russo. Yeah. They put coins in a sock on the top of a pole in 1996 yeah. when yeah. Vince Russo is nowhere around. It's Dusty Rhodes. And he did it with a guy who had half his hair, who was doing promos saying... I'm not a fish. I'm a man to the point where as, as Bubba is, is whipping Uh Tenta with a belt. Uh Heenan says he's hitting him in the gills. (laughs) And then you said he doesn't have gills. And Heenan says, I know he's not a fish. (laughs) It made me laugh. (laughs) (laughs) It 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 made me laugh. I just, it's just funny to me how history will look back and they'll say Dusty Rhodes is one of the greatest minds in the history of wrestling. Vince Russo is a dumbass who put everything on a pole.
0: Yeah, well, there was uh, wasn't there a coal miner's glove match on a pole?
1: Yes, and, and Vince Russo okay. wasn't there for that either.
0: Exactly, he wasn't there for that. So I, I agree. There was also some commentary, which to me was the funniest line of the night. And, and I know you're going to say. Yeah, Heenan wasn't giving the athletes their due because he was being funny. But after the match was over and they swing and they hit Bubba or Tente hits Bubba, I say, I say, as the legendary announcer for the Yankees, Phil, uh, Mel Allen would have said, how about that? And Dusty says, as Phil Rizzuto would have said, holy cow. And Heenan, without missing a beat says, as Harry Carey would have said, I'll have another one. I just- That's phenomenal. <laughs> that is phenomenal. That is off the cuff phenomenal Heenan comedy, <laughs> and we had to all pause with that because I almost swallowed my tongue on that one. So that, uh, so anyway, it was it was. I, I thought the end of the match. Going back to this match, everybody shit on. It. How many stars did it get?
1: A it, half a star? No, it got a star and a quarter for a fifty-five-year-old Jimmy Hart uh, mm-hmm. climbing up the pole. Uh, this comes after, I guess, somebody thought, "Hey, we're not going to be able." To climb the pole, So take these scissors out there and we're going to tease like we're going to cut more hair, but then Mm -hmm. instead we're going to try to cut the straps down to bring the pole down to our fat ass level. And I can say that I am a fat ass, but -hmm. then they just said, Hey, we'd carry, I mean, Hey, Jimmy Hart, climb that pole and get that sock. And Jim did it because he's a pro. Absolutely. Yeah. And by the way, when he turned around, he nailed the timing of turning around and seeing Mm -hmm. that. Bubba wasn't there and Tenta was yeah. his facials yeah. were all Jimmy Hart's one of the more underrated performers in the business, yes. Uh, yes, super is. talented anyway, uh, as Hart comes down, Tenta's waiting, gets the sock, hits Bubba, Bubba in the mouth with a sock full of quarters. This is real fans, pop fans, Fan, pop fans, pop, and, uh, he gets the pin at nine minutes. And so then he takes some of the, he dumps the coins out on him. So you hear the coins, another reel. and then he takes one coin each and puts them on Bubba's eyes. And what I thought was funny about this, watching it back is that, uh, Bubba is actually talking to him while he's doing it. So you kind of ruin the visual of, Hey, he's dead. Of course he's not really dead. And and instead of putting X's over his eyes, we're going to put these coins over his eyes. Well, that looks like shit. If you're talking the whole way through. Yeah, it does.
0: And it was a a case of the camera should have pulled off of it. It's a case of you should
1: shut the fuck up. That's what it's a case of. Exactly exactly
0: uh, not only that the the announcers missed the coins on the eyes gimmick you know well uh, the announcers suck <laughs> well apparently Heenan did according to you well no because he-, he was burying everybody to be funny
1: no he's trying to he's trying to pop the boys and talk about haircuts yep. and Harry Carey alcoholic lines instead of commenting on the fucking show okay no don't get me wrong best commentator ever this per- this yeah. performance in particular his worst show of all time
0: oh no no, not at all. He had worse shows not than at, this. Oh my God. Not at all. I don't, this is so. not even close. And now I'm it's as far as I'm going to go.
1: Okay.
0: I'm not going to bury Bobby Heenan. I'm not, I'm not going to bury Bobby
1: Heenan. I didn't ask you to,
0: e- even though he has buried me, I'm not going to bury him. Cause I'm not getting into that. I loved Heenan. I loved working with him. He did a great job in this show.
1: We're not next. We're not burying him. We to put over. He's okay. the best of all time. I'm not going to. I didn't ask you to. Okay. What Love would you Bobby rather Heenan. what would you rather do? Bury Bobby Heenan on this show or smell Klondike Bill's underpants? <laughs> okay. Oh, that's a tough one. Uh Or get a warm I, embrace I, from Tom Zink.
0: Okay, I would rather get a warm embrace from Tom Zink.
1: I knew it. Uh so after Thank the you. match, we go backstage. Oh, You're welcome. I saved you. Uh, to an interview with Gene, who is doing a promo here with Randy Savage, Sting, and Lex Luger. All three are wearing Sting paint. Do you remember whose idea that may have been? Hey, you know, nostalgia is big right
0: now. It's one of the main reasons that what happened when Monday is so popular, and we are so thankful for that. And one of the things that sticks in our memory when you watch wrestling events, when you watch television shows, when you watch your favorite movies are the tunes and that's what makes our friends that enjoy the ride records so special with their enjoy the tunes label they produce reissue of licensed soundtracks to nostalgic television shows on limited edition colored vinyl which has been dynamic for the collector's market officially licensed limited edition albums from your favorite childhood television shows and films including ace ventura jim henson productions various nicktoons albums which feature songs from the Rugrats, Ren and Stimpy, Hey Arnold, and more. Visit them right now at EnjoyTheRideRecords.com or at EnjoyTheRideRecords on social media and pick up your limited edition collectible colored vinyl with cult following soundtracks from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s, including a title track we'll never forget. Remember this? Voodoo Child, the music for Hulk Hogan when he turned, and became Hollywood Hogan, it's one of our great sponsors this week. Check them out at EnjoyTheRideRecords.com or at EnjoyTheRideRecords
1: on social media. All three are wearing sting paint. Do you remember whose idea that may have been? Yeah, that was was Sting's. Um, We just heard last week that uh, Lex Luger couldn't be bothered to have uh, stinky shrimp smells on his finger. Right, No chance that he painted this with his own hands, right? He made Sting paint no. him.
0: Yeah, Sting painted him up.
1: Next up, we've got DDP wrestling Jim Duggan in a tape fist match to retain the Lord of the Ring ring in five minutes and 39 seconds. In the match here, Paige would tape together Duggan's boots, and that would uh, trap him around the post. And then he pulls out scissors, so that's two batches in a row with scissors and tape, and he cuts the tape off of Duggan's fists. Uh, and here page basically does the Terry funk routine, uh, bouncing up and down on the ropes and looking better than usual in doing so. According to the wrestling observer, uh, Duggan is according to Dave Meltzer, just about the worst wrestler in the business. And page is overrated in some circles and underrated in others. Uh, this match in the ring was much better than it would have been imagined due to page who won with a diamond cutter after the match, Duggan taped his fists and KO would page star in three quarters. Uh, yeah. Lots of gimmicks so far in this show. Uh, what do you think of this match and, and Duggan and DDP's performance here? It it wasn't good,
0: and it was one of those confusing uh, matches with confusing rules. Because And I even mentioned as the guys were walking out, and I remember thinking this, if this is a tape-fist match, don't we have tape-fist rules? But we were told, no, you don't have tape-fist rules. So it was kind of a clusterfuck from the beginning. Uh, I would, I, I have a question about all of this, the circles that Meltzer is talking about, or the observer is talking about what circles are he talking of Is he talking about, is he talking about circles in wrestling or circles that he hangs out in? I, I love those obscure comments in some circles. He's overrated in some circles. He's underrated. I, I think, it's tell me just- what those fucking circles are. No one can because it's a bullshit line. But the the match wasn't that good.
1: (laughs) Uh, There was another fun line in here where Heenan said, if Duggan wins, he'll have two rings. Uh, That ring and the other is the ring around his bathtub. So there's some fun one-liners in here. Typical Bobby Heenan good stuff. After the Mm -hmm. match, we go backstage for Gene. Uh, This time he's got the giant Kevin Sullivan and Jimmy Hart. Um, Some fun little deadpan stuff here with Gene. Uh, He asked Jimmy to do him a favor and brush his teeth. Uh, Tremendous. Pretty good stuff. They go back to the arena where Lee Marshall is interviewing Arn Anderson and Chris Benoit. Aaron talks about the outsiders and then their match later, uh, and he talks about their tag match that they've got coming up against the Sullivan and Giant. Um and Benoit says he's gonna leave Sullivan for dead. At this point, had all of their stuff started to happen to the best of your recollection?
0: Yes, it had. <clears throat> and, and again. I'm going to take you back to this. When that stuff started to happen, I didn't believe it. I thought it was work. Right. Uh, and I was told differently. Uh, some people had some, uh, had seen some things occur backstage. And, and again, even when people would told me, well, I saw this backstage, I'm thinking, yeah, they're working the boys again. But, uh, apparently that was, that obviously was not the case. It's really tough to comment on this.
1: No, it is. We'll move along. It, it really is. And yeah, adult- I mean, it, it, it is. And a double dog collar match, the Nasty Boys be public enemy in 11 and a half minutes. Uh, lots of foreign objects used, lots of stiff shots, almost no selling here. Kind of an ECW style match. Um, the The finish comes when they're trying to get uh, after garbage cans and lids and chair shots and surfboards and jumping off lifeguard stands and uh, you know being dragged down by the chain, kind of legitimately. They go for a table shot, and the table just will not break. They tried a couple of times, and it just is not happening. Uh, and eventually, uh, Rocco is clotheslined with a chain and Sags pins him. Uh, public enemy then beats up the Nasty Boys after the match. It gets a star and a quarter. Uh, when the when the pinfall was made, you said on air, that was a mess. Uh, yeah. you, it certainly was as far as everything that they're doing here. But despite all these objects being used and, and all the violence, there's no blood. That seemed really right. weird to me. Yeah, it did. I, I thought too. I thought, uh,
0: it was weird because it was no blood and it was a mess to call, uh, and it was everywhere. And, uh, I thought I was right on to say it was a mess. He didn't have the best line when the table didn't break the second time. He didn't said without, without flinching, that's the toughest table I've ever seen. <laughs> Uh, and he had some great comments as, as well, when they were up on the lifeguard stand and everything, it was just, uh, it was just all over the place Four guys going at it, uh, and just a mess. And it wouldn't be the last mess we would call, but it was a mess. It's not knocking on any of the guys. It's just, they did exactly what they, they do. Right.
1: But but when there's two fights going on separately and you've got to go, you can't show either. You've got to show both. It it is a little confusing as a broadcaster, I'm sure, to say, "Okay, I'm talking about the screen on the left now." Right. That's a lot to follow. It was a match not made for TV. Yeah, but the crowd—it should have been a house show. Doesn't seem like the crowd was that into this one either. I mean, I didn't feel like there was there was a lot of fanfare for this. No, there wasn't. Um, There wasn't. What did you think of Public Enemy's run in WCW? They had a run with the tag team titles, unfortunately, and neither man is with us anymore. A lot of people felt like this was just a gimmick that worked in ECW for a moment in time, uh, and, and they really didn't belong in WCW in this incarnation. That's not to say that these guys couldn't have pulled off a different gimmick, but maybe there was some uh, a miss in the execution. Let's see. Yeah, I
0: agree with that. It was an ECW thing that didn't work for WCW. Uh, to the point to where, again, it's not knocking on anything at using tables or using gimmicks or using trash cans. But when you use enough of that stuff, fans become immune to it because it doesn't mean anything. I became immune to it and I even was not in this match, but down the road, I said, because the guys would start using trash can lids. If you'll recall and, and banging each other on the head with it. And I said during one match, I said, as you can tell, that trash can lid makes a lot of noise, but is really not having much effect. And I remember Meltzer saying, and somebody re- told me, may have been Scott Hudson that told me, I'm not so sure, because Scott would tell me all this stuff. <laughs> uh, Meltzer said or, that why would Shivani ever say anything like that? Because they weren't selling it. Right. And if they're not selling it as performers getting hit in a them? trash can lid, then how should I sell it as an announcer? Right. Because if you get it in, in real life, if you get beaten over the head with a trash can lid a couple of times, you're not going to pop back up, I don't think. It sounded loud. It looked good. But it, it to me, it, it exposed the violence of it. It was just high spot, but anyway, going back to it. Yeah. I don't think the ECW stuff played too well in WCW.
1: After the match, we go backstage. We see Jean standing in front of the outsider's dressing room and there's four cops standing in front of it. Uh, and here after this, we are treated to Dean Malenko and disco Inferno. Uh, they go about 12 minutes. Uh, Dean gets the win with a Texas Cloverleaf to keep the WCW cruiserweight title. This is probably the second best match on the show. And uh, yeah. I thought both guys did really good here. I've always felt like Malenko never got his due. Uh, a lot of people would say it's because of his personality or his promo or that he was too serious as a wrestler. Uh, but either way, I thought this was a good match and really showed what these guys were capable of. Um, the pin comes when Malenko used the tiger driver and then the clover Leaf. Uh, Meltzer would give it three and a quarter stars and says, quote, this was a good Japanese style match. What'd you think mm-hmm. of it?
0: It was a good match. Uh, and it was a pretty good story that I think we told as announcers. And uh, Glenn, the Disco Inferno, did a good job of of really portraying the ring in that he had a chance maybe to win, but he was too much into his disco, into his look and everything, to even make the covers in time. I thought that was a pretty good story within the match itself. So I agree it was a great match. Uh, I love Dean Malenko, and I, I think the, the comment that, He was a too serious of a guy is not accurate at all. Dean Malenko was really backstage. Pretty funny guy.
1: Yeah. I think Uh, he just means in terms of as a wrestler, he didn't have much character. So to
0: speak. Well, right. But it was different, right? Yeah. Not everything can be the same. So I thought, I thought that Malenko being serious and the fact, fact that we put it over and the fact that he could really go, he could really wrestle made it a pretty good gimmick for him. And again, backstage, you know, Dean Malenko was a pretty funny guy. Uh, and uh, so I always enjoyed his matches. I, I, I always, To me, Dean Malenko was a lot like, like Eddie Guerrero in that you were never were really disappointed any time they came to the ring. If maybe they didn't have the, the, the best opponent, and this was a good opponent for Dean. If they didn't have the best opponent, you still saw something good out of the match.
1: Absolutely. They, they could yeah. get a good match of anybody. Yeah. Uh, and that's no knock to Disco Inferno. How do you think Disco's career may have been different if he didn't have this gimmick? Obviously the gimmick, uh, is something that people remember and it gets people talking and it's, it's interesting and unique, but if he had been given a different, more serious gimmick that was less, um, I don't know, pigeonholed into a character like this, yeah. I think he was a good enough wrestler to move up the card. What, what do you say? yeah so you're saying the gimmick drug him down I think so. I think the gimmick have got him on TV, uh, but I don't I don't know that it really allowed him to reach his full potential. I think it was a uh, both a gift and a curse yeah
0: yeah that, that's that's very accurate. Uh, Glenn Gilberti loves the wrestling business as we know, loved it, was a student of it, uh, studied it, and was a good performer and looked good. maybe the disco uh gimmick was a little silly. But I kind of like the disco gimmick. Maybe it should have been given to somebody else who wasn't as good a worker. But then the, now the, the, the question is, if he didn't have the disco gimmick, what, what do gimmick you, do you give him? Yeah. Do you give him a gimmick? Do you just let him wrestle as himself? Like Dean Malenko wrestled as Dean Malenko. That may have worked too.
1: Well, what was, uh, what was Joe, go, Joe Gomez's gimmick? He's wrestling in the next match against Steve yeah. McMichael. They go six minutes and 44 seconds. I was, I was watching this with a friend of the show, Mr. Matt Coon, and Matt has a firm opinion that Steve McMichael is the worst wrestler in the history of WCW. And I I don't, I don't agree with that. I took issue and said, I disagree. And then through the course of this match, I wondered if I could name a match that was worse. It actually gets a negative half a star, uh, Meltzer would write. Uh, McMichael has the attitude and his wife has the look, but it was painful putting two guys on who were so green on a pay-per-view and then having them go this long and then exposed him big time. Just terrible. Uh, what do you think of the match? And, and if he's not the worst wrestler in WCW history, who is? Well,
0: that's a good question. Who the worst wrestler in WCW history is Van Hammer. Certainly to me, uh, gets a little bit of nod on that being the worst wrestler. Todd Champion, one of the worst wrestlers in WCW history. Uh, Joe Gomez was brutal. And it was not a good pairing for Steve McMichael uh, because a lot of times when you get a guy who doesn't have the experience of a Steve McMichael, nor can he work like some of the other guys, you should probably try to pair him with somebody that can work to help him belong. And Joe Gomez wasn't the guy. Joe was a, Joe was a freaking meathead. And, uh, good guy, kind of, but still a meathead. And it was just wrong. It was a terrible match and it exposed everything. Uh, it exposed, and I, I don't think you can blame Mongo for this all Mongo for this being a bad match. I mean, well, go back and look at it again.
1: The the pile driver to that's the finish. The tombstone pile driver was right. phenomenal. Um, right. And as Bruce Pritchard likes to say, and then the bell rang, this was a brutal match. Um, mm-hmm. Was Mongo a better announcer, wrestler, or neither?
0: Uh, he was a better announcer than he was a wrestler.
1: That's saying something. Ric Flair would pin Conan to win the United States title in 15 minutes and 39 seconds. Meltzer would write, it was a basic Flair match with all the regular spots. At one point, Conan came off the apron with a body block on Flair and nearly wiped out Liz in the process. When Conan was on the top rope, woman shook the rope and he crotched himself. That was low blow number 171 on the pay-per-view woman later gave Conan a tremendous low blow, which was so good. It should have been the finish instead Conan recovered from that. And they traded figure fours and Conan got a few near falls. Uh, finally Liz distracted the ref and woman gave Conan a horrible looking shot with a high heel shoe and Conan sold it as if he were shot and Flair pinned him with his feet on the ropes. The match was good until the finish, which looked really bad considering the style clash, they both did well, which probably isn't surprising because Flair has carried a whole lot worse in his career for the record. This was Flair's sixth reign as us champion. The last time being when he lost the title to January on January 27th, 1981 to Roddy Piper, two and a half stars. Wow. Well, uh, what do you think of the match and, and their individual performances? I really appreciate, uh,
0: first of all, I appreciate Dave Meltzer being our statistician on that and being accurate. Because, you know, really, in the the grand scheme of things, no one gives a fuck when he last won the title. That's number one. Match was okay. Uh, To me, uh, I thought, and I thought this, I remember thinking this when the match went on. I thought woman screaming the way she was screaming kind of took away from the match. Uh, she was good, man. She was a tough girl. And, uh, but she screamed a lot during that match to the point to where it kind of took away from the match. I thought, and I agree with Dave. It wasn't a great finish at all.
1: You know, how awful is it to think about when they were doing the promo before this with Ric Flair woman, mm-hmm. um, Elizabeth and main Jean. When you look at that and you see those four figures on TV, Mm-hmm. That the women don't live longer than the men.
0: Isn't that something? I mean,
1: they're so much younger. Yeah. It's it just, you would never in a million years imagine that these two women would have the untimely demises that they did.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's both are tragic stories. And both are tragic stories about wrestling, uh, unfortunately. I agree. Going back. Uh, I thought the antics between woman and Gene Okerlund during that interview was priceless.
1: What was the I mean, line? The closet. So, do you remember? What's that? Do you remember the line at the end? Nobody in my house caught it when we watched it again, but okay. when Gene is throwing it back, he says, yeah, uh, Tony back to you. We're going to do some pole vaulting <laughs> or something like that. And I'm like, right. Three people got that, but I happened to be right. one of them. And that was awesome.
0: That was Gene Okerlund. best man. Gene Okerlund could make it sound serious. Was the, was the greatest straight man ever with the mic, with the stick, as they say, but also was the most entertaining one as a stick as well. He's just tremendous. And he said, she said, we are we going to have a party? And he went, pa papa party <laughs> Oh, God. You know, I, I, think, I think I've think i said this before. Uh, Jr. is the greatest play-by-play man ever, but the greatest announcer ever in the business, announcer, is Gene Oakley.
1: Um, hands down, it feels like we've seen this finish a lot in wrestling, but this one seems like a really poor execution. Liz has the ref distracted for about three days while mm-hmm, a woman right. is standing on the apron for a long weekend yeah. before they ever find their way back over there. Was this uh, a styles clash or did somebody fuck up their spot?
0: That, well, that was somebody fucked up their spot. You know, flair was always really good on timing, you know, uh, there was one time that Flair went up on the, and this is a spot that he had always done before. Had walked up on the turnbuckles, and the opponent gets up, yeah. and then sends Slaves him over. him over, yeah. If the timing on that was shitty as well, because Flair went up there and stayed for quite a what seemed like an eternity before Conan got him down. So it was a case of of bad timing between the two, and it was a case of too many people out there, yeah. involved in a match. You didn't need that many people.
1: Rick has uh, in hindsight over the years, kind of poked fun at the fact that WCW programmed him with Conan here. And I don't know that it was necessarily a knock against Conan. And of course I'm a Flair apologist, so I can just say that, but I think it was based on, he's been in the world title picture since 1980, fucking one. And now he's back in the U S title picture. It doesn't really make any sense. It does feel like Conan kind of on his way up the WCW ranks. Of course he'd already conquered Mexico, but he's trying to move his way up this American audience here with WCW and flair is coming down a little bit to do so. And that's not a knock against anybody. It's just where they were on the card.
0: Yeah. But also there's something else to be said about this match. How many times did you see flair and Conan on a pay-per-view or on a Monday Nitro, right? It goes back to the, it goes back to a, a common thread here that I've talked about. We've seen so many combinations over and over to the point to where we've seen them all. And I think seeing Flair against Conan here was at least, something in new. theory, was was refreshing, right?
1: Oh, absolutely. No, I can't, yeah. I can't argue that at all. Um, right. Do you think the, the, the goal here from Bischoff is to give new life to the U.S. title by putting Flair on there? Since they've kind of got a, a plan in place for what they're going to do with the world title, they want to find a way to kind of cleverly remove Ric Flair from that and let him make another belt mean something? Yeah, I think, uh, yeah.
0: Anytime Flair was a champion, it meant the, it, the belt meant something. But let's be honest, the U.S. belt in its infancy meant something in the old territories. But when you became a national promotion, it always was kind of second best to the world title. Um, but Flair would make it mean a little bit more. At least that's what the thought was.
1: So next up we've got the giant and Kevin Sullivan and they beat Arne Anderson and Chris Benoit in about eight minutes after the giant chokeslams Arne Anderson. And the stipulation of the match was if either Benoit or Arne get the pin, then a member of the horseman would get a world title shot against the giant on the next nitro. They get the other horseman in on the act early when McMichael hits the giant with the briefcase early. Uh, and this leaves Anderson and Benoit to beat on Sullivan and try to establish him as the face in the match, uh, Sullivan even though he's being double teamed, isn't necessarily selling a lot. This is all from the observer. Uh, his comeback came when he gave Anderson the sloppiest monkey flip in the history of pay-per-view on Benoit mm-hmm. giant made the tag Benoit and Sullivan brawled to the back and the giant immediately slammed Anderson for the pin after the match Benoit used a crossbody off the television platform onto Sullivan and both landed in the beach area. They brawled back to the ring where Benoit gave Sullivan a backwards superplex off the top rope and kept stomping on him until a woman ran in and screamed for Benoit to stop hurting Kevin. No acknowledgement was made about them being married, nor were any hints dropped. Uh, the giant carried Sullivan out on his shoulders. So they're really starting to blur the line here. They do have the backdrop of the match. Um, but really they're telling a story to build up, uh, the kind of worked shoot with Benoit and Sullivan. Was this uncomfortable for everybody, or does everybody kind of have their own opinion like you did? This is just a work.
0: Well, it, it, it was uncomfortable, and I thought it was a work, but I had I had no guidance here. We did not sell it. We sold it as if we don't know what she is talking about. We didn't sell it as if Kevin and, and, and Nancy had been married or were married and still seeing each other. And an affair with Benoit or whatever, because we were not told what to say here. We didn't even know woman was going to come running out. So if they wanted us to further the storyline here, they probably should have clued us in. Uh, that's why another thing is I'm thinking this whole fucking thing's a work, and they have no idea where they're going with it. So um, I was kind of disappointed in that, And that uh, was one of those things where they are I thought they're working the boys, and now they're working us, too. So, well, here comes Nancy. She's coming out on her own because it's a shoot and we're not going to tell the announcers because we didn't tell her to come out. If we'd have told her to come out, it'd have been a work. So that's one of those things. Uh, I can tell you this. And and the old question is, and I guess we're going to get into it a little bit later. Let's get into it a little bit later.
1: Um, Let's talk about the, the four guys in this match before we move on to what everybody's here for. The big show, of course, debuts at Halloween havoc 95. That's when he has his first match becomes world champion. Nine months later here, he's world champion again. Um, so he's kind of on his way up and he's going to main event the next month against Hulk Hogan in a pay-per-view for the world title, the pinnacle of any wrestler's career to have a title match against Hogan in the main event. Um, Anderson's in ring career is ending just a few months after this match. Kevin Sullivan also wrapping up his in-ring career. Of course, he was a big part of creative, so he's not going anywhere. Just, uh, no, you know, the in-ring stuff is going to start to wind down. And, and Benoit is, is on the uptick. Is there ever been a, a bigger mixed bag of guys where they are in their career than this one? When you look at this, it feels like they're all on the precipice of something really big. Yeah, you're right. Benoit was one of the most spectacular workers.
0: Uh, the giant was incredible, the look and the way he could work. I didn't necessarily always like, uh, Paul's interviews. That wasn't his fault. I don't think anybody really worked with him on his interviews like they should. Uh, I don't think he had to make that husky voice in the screen because in reality, Paul was a very engaging, funny, uh, guy who could talk. He didn't need to do the giant scream, uh, and if you go back and look at the match, he I, I thought he did a good job of protecting Arn's neck when he gave him the choke slam.
1: Oh, for because, sure. He took yeah. care of him.
0: Arn hit on his, his back that time instead of hitting on the back of his neck or anything like that. So, uh, yeah, I, I agree. It was a mixed bag. Uh, Kevin Sullivan was always a guy in the backstage area who had a very creative mind and was just one of the, the guys who you just love working with because he loved the business and he was friendly and he liked new ideas. Uh, sometimes maybe not the greatest communicator of those ideas, but that wasn't always his fault. That sometimes was the fault of some of the slapdicks that were working with him. Uh, but uh, and then Arn Anderson to me let's go back and, and take a look at that entire show. Who gave the best interview? Arn Anderson did. Sure. When Lee when Lee Marshall held the mic for Arn Anderson, he said that he wasn't, you know, he didn't like the uh, the outsiders And he talked about that. He just tied everything together. He just the best ever.
1: So let's talk about the main event here, uh, in the July 1st edition of the observer, Dave would write, as for the identity of the third party in the July 7th main event, it's really a secret. Lex Luger was the original plan. I can't see that happening because it would almost be an exact duplicate of the Steve McMichael angle. And it's too soon to do it again. It could still happen, but I don't think it will. Bischoff, Hall, and Nash were discussing names this past week with Mabel being the top candidate, Crush being considered for a brief period, and then dismissed. All agreed Bret Hart would be the best candidate, and WCW even floated the idea that it would be Hart on its hotline over the weekend. But Hart has turned down every offer thrown his way. Supposedly, Bischoff has in the past few days told Hall and Nash to trust him on this one, but admitted that if they bring someone in other than Hart, it isn't going to be Hart that it will come across as a letdown. It could also be another WCW wrestler turning on the company. So there's lots of rumor and innuendo in the business here as to who or what this will be. Um, of course at the time, Brett's contract was expiring. He wouldn't officially resign with the WWF until that fall. I believe it was October. So since people know he's been off TV since WrestleMania, his contract expired over the summer. Lots of people believe this will be Brett Hart. Uh, others believe it's going to be Kurt angle and Eric Bischoff himself has said that the backup plan or one of the plans that was just in case was that it would be sting and that this would be the first time we would see a heel sting and that sting would be, had been prepped for it and was game for it and was ready to do it. Uh, if he couldn't pull off what he was working on here, um, supposedly he's shooting a movie, he being Hulk Hogan. Uh, when Roddy Piper comes to visit him on set and he tells Piper that he's turning heel, that starts to be floated out there, but people kind of dismiss that because, well, it's Hulk Hogan. He's not turning heel. Um, do you have any other memories of folks who were discussed to be the third man? Another popular theory was the British bulldog because the bulldog had put in his notice on the other side based on his family being unhappy with the way his wife was presented in a storyline with Shawn Michaels and since this is kind of all work to shoot anyway, people start to really wonder, hey, is the third man Bulldog? Did you ever hear any of these rumors about Bulldog or Mabel or Bret Hart or Crush or any of those guys?
0: Bret Hart was the, uh, the rumor that we m- heard most about. Uh, so I, I thought that Bret Hart would have a chance. The, the storyline with Hogan was also a chance, too. I knew that. We all knew that I thought now I'm, we're doing this match. We're doing this night. And as an announced team, we still don't know. And they were kayfabe and everybody working the boys, right? When, and this is what I wanted to say earlier. When Mongo hits the giant on the back and the giant runs after him in the backstage area. Remember that? Yeah. I thought that I thought it was going to be the giant then. Right. because I didn't think the giant would reappear. I thought that was a way to get him out of the match. And then he would reappear for the six man tag. So I thought it was going to be the giant. I also, and and I thought it was kind of interesting as we went along that night was trying to read what was going on in the back, talking to Gene, and read what was going on in the back when, and I thought about this that night. And then when I watched it uh, a couple days ago, this reinforced it in my mind when I'm watching uh, the macho man and sting and Lex Luger do the interviews, Sting was kind of in the back by himself. Macho Man and Luger were out front, and he was kind of standing in the back and talked at the very end. So I thought he might be turning heel tonight because he's just kind of standing in the back listening to Macho Man and Luger talk. So I had no idea, but the rumors, the strong rumors were it was going to be Bret Hart. Which, to me, if unless it was going to be somebody, a big star from the WWE or a big star that we had already, it was going to be a popcorn fart. And as it turned out, it wasn't.
1: So you, you did not know until it happened?
0: No, I did not know. We knew the possibilities. Now, isn't it true that they had to talk Hulk Hogan into this even that day?
1: Yeah, we'll get there in just a minute. I, okay. I do want to address that. We asked some people to ask questions or we asked Twitter to uh, give us some questions, and uh, right. we're going to get to those in just a minute. Sting and Randy Savage and Lex Luger went to a no decision against Hall and Nash. Uh, Luger was KO'd early when Sting used a stinger splash on Nash, which in storyline storyline uh, was said to have hit Luger, although it didn't. Luger has been destroyed a million times worse in the past and not even sold it, but this time he did a stretcher job, and the match was halted for a few minutes. This is all word for word from the Observer. Okay, The match was so-so. Totally saved by the finish, mainly with the outsiders beating on sting. Savage made the hot tag until Nash low blowed him. Hogan came out and the rest was history during the post-match. A fat fan hit the ring. Definitely not a plant and Nash knocked him down with one punch. And he and hall really put the boots to him right on live television before security hauled him out Hmm. three stars. So that's your recap for the match for one of the biggest pay-per-views of all time. Um, Let's talk about the, the breakdown though, because we've got a 15 year run babyface here in Hulk Hogan, and now he's turned heel, uh, which is obviously one of the most memorable moments ever in wrestling then and now, and probably forever. Um, and he does so when he comes out to a babyface pop. So the story here, of course, is that, you know, they've even the odds it's two on two. And the heels are laying waste to the baby faces. A prone macho man is laying in the center of the ring. Sting's been thrown out of the ring. Luger's been stretched to the back. So here comes Hulk Hogan. He does come out to a pop and the rumor and innuendo was that Hogan's reactions had really waned. And that's the reason this turn made sense. But here he comes out to a pop and this comes right after Nash has delivered a low blow to Savage. Uh, So Hogan, of course, comes out and teases going after Hall and Nash, but they bail out of the ring, and he leg drops Savage twice while people in the crowd are trying to figure out what the hell is going on. And the heat comes in, literally, a flood of trash into the ring. Um, And it's probably one of the more intense scenes we've ever seen because people were really mad and throwing trash like we've never really seen here. I know this has happened in other uh, territories before, but it's probably the first time it's happened in a, in a major show like this for WCW. Uh, and he gives one of the best interviews in years talking about building a giant organization up North and making a lot of money for those people. Uh, and now he's down here and he's here to take over. Uh, and he is saying that he was bigger than wrestling and that he made wrestling and these guys wouldn't even be here if it wasn't for him. And it's saying that the garbage in the, in the ring represents the fans and tell them to stick it because of the way they had handled him after he's done all this charity. So it's kind of a half work, half shoot interview. Uh, and it's enough to get people pretty fired up. Of course, there's a lot of people, including one guy in the front row, wearing an ECW shirt, who's losing his mind and absolutely loves that Hogan is now a heel. What'd you think of the execution here? What'd you think of the promo and the way the match was laid out, Tony? Uh, the way the match was laid out was okay.
0: Uh, again, the storyline of who would be the third person and what's going to happen overshadowed the match itself. So I'm not so sure the match even really mattered in the context. The promo to me was spot on because, uh, it shows me say what you want about Hulk Hogan as a performer in the ring. But man, he could, when he had great promos, he had great promos. And this was one of his great promos. He nailed it. He really did. He brought it all together. The trash in the ring, uh, that was obviously was not planned. I know there are some people says, well, WCW wanted that trash in the ring. It was planned. It was not planned. But as fans will do, once one starts,
1: everybody does. You know the rest.
0: Yeah, the rest are going to throw it in. Hogan did a to me did a great ad lib talking about the trash in the ring represents the fans. It was a great scene, and to me, it was just a spectacular finish. I thought it was handled so well by Hulk Hogan and Okerlund coming in the ring. You know, uh, being Okerlund and and, you know Okerlund's ties to to um, Hulk Hogan, uh, just all tied it together. To me, it was a perfect moment. It was a perfect moment. If we were going to turn Hulk Hogan heel, Hulk could not have done a better job at turning heel than he did that night. Could not have.
1: Uh, Meltzer wrote in between the pay-per-view opener and the angle. It was basically an average pay-per-view show highlighted more by the strongest performance in the career of Tony Schiavone. Tony Schiavone focused the entire show on the main angle and the identity of the third man to the point that the show show was largely well-received despite the mediocre nature of much of the show, because the key angle paid off in a big way. So would you like to apologize to Dave Meltzer?
0: Yeah, Dave, I'm sorry. Uh, You've said some bad things about me, and I've reacted wrongly to them. I've called you bad things on this program. And to be honest with you, Dave, as we go uh, move forward here, I'm going to call you bad things again. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But you have said good things about me in the past, and I appreciate that. You never did like my work, but this uh, comment,
1: Conrad, shocks the shit out of me. He wrote, Shivani ended the pay-per-view show with the line, Hulk Hogan, you can go to hell. Probably one of your more famous uh, lines, wouldn't you agree? I mean, I can only think of one that's more famous, maybe two yeah, that are more right. famous. Uh, yeah. Hulk Hogan, you can go to hell. You didn't know it was Hulk Hogan, so that was just off the cuff, right?
0: Right, that's right. Uh, and I'm, I, I watched it again, and I'm thinking, I'm trying to remember when I developed in my mind, Hulk Hogan, you can go to hell. It had to, It was right there at the end as we are. Wrapping it up, and I'm saying for Bobby Heenan, and I'm saying for Dusty Rhodes, and I'm trying to think what I can say to impact this without trying to overshadow it. You know, we got to go, screaming bullshit that I do. And so I just came out with that. I go in the backstage area, and Brian Knobs uh, immediately comes to me and says, that, my friend, was a hell of a line. And it didn't hit me that that line was, had such an impact until Knobs said something to me in the back out of that. Uh, as, we went, as we went along, and the years that follow, I've, I've heard people say that that was one of the greatest lines ever in a wrestling event. I'm honored, and I can tell you it was completely off the cuff because I didn't know that this was going to be Hogan. Something I want to touch on, too, Is Bobby Heenan's comment when Hogan walked in the ring.
1: That's what we wanted to get to. Everybody's put heat on him for years and years. When you guys are putting over the moon, oh, it's Hulk Hogan. He's here to save the day. And Bobby Heenan Mm -hmm. says, whose side is he on?
0: Right. What do you think? When that happened, well, when that happened, I'm thinking, well, shit, Heenan knows something that I don't know. And I let it pass. And then going back and looking at it, it works within the context of Bobby Heenan and his problems with Hulk Hogan. Heenan never trusted Hogan. Heenan always hated Hogan. Heenan never wanted to paint Hogan in a good light. So for Heenan to say that line worked. Anybody else would have said it. It would have been worse.
1: Oh, for sure. It, can,
0: it could have been misconstrued that Heenan was giving away the the finish. But he said, you know, but who sides he on? He said it again as he rolls in the ring. So I thought for Heenan to say it, it was fine. I think we read too much into that.
1: Meltzer wrote that Hogan agreed to do this about 11 days prior to the show, uh, largely because, quote, there was no place left in WCW for him had he not chosen to do so. He had two pay-per-views left on his contract. One, they had promised to Slim Jim a Savage Hogan main event and Halloween Havoc. And the month prior, of course, he was contracted to do hog wild, but then he was done, uh, right before, uh, they had to move the nitro time slot for the NBA playoffs, Hogan went to go shoot a movie and that killed the ratings. Then when he came back and they expanded to two hours, the show started to increase to its highest ratings to date. And that actually hurt Hogan's leverage a little bit. So he sits down with Bischoff on June 26th and they have a conversation about what this might look like. And the belief was that Hull and Nash were hot enough. And this angle was hot enough enough that Hogan would start to draw because he had positioned himself because of his giant money deal that he was kind of expendable. He wasn't working house show dates. He's only working TVs and pay-per-views and they needed to make some room or make a decision because his popularity had not been maybe what it had been in the past. Uh, They're cheering for their favorites by this point. Kind of the smart marks are cheering for Ric Flair more so than say your prayers, eat your vitamins, things like that. Of course, his name still means a lot in buy rates. You know, of course, the biggest pay-per-view they ever had in 94 uh, was the Bash of the Beach, and that was because of Hulk Hogan, and people wanted to take their kids to see Hulk Hogan. But this is a risk. Will people take their kids to see a bad guy, Hulk Hogan, all the merchandise that you're selling with a babyface superhero, like Hulk Hogan is, is a major revenue source. But if he's a heel, is anybody buying bad guy merchandise historically? That wasn't the case. So there was a little bit of a risk for Hogan to do this because just because he's done here, doesn't mean he can't go be a babyface back up North or somewhere else, Japan, whatever it may be. So Bischoff has the contingency plan, the plan B that we touched on earlier and decides it should be Sting, and and largely Meltzer freestyles that that decision was made because people had seen a heel Savage and people had seen a heel Luger and the Luger turn had already been kind of floated out there as a rumor for so long, they wanted a shock and it wouldn't be a shock with either one of them, but it would if the perennial baby face sting turned heel. How different do you think the business would be today, Tony, if Hogan had kiboshed this and they went with Sting instead? i
0: It's not a, a slight on Sting, but I don't think it would have been as good as it was uh, was now to date or was back then. To me, Hogan was, after it all was shook out, to me, Hogan was the best choice because of Hulk Hogan was the biggest name in wrestling, heel or babyface. You know, with marketing people, you just say the name Hulk Hogan. I'm not sure if marketing people knew that he was a heel. But now he was lying to himself. He talked about the New World Order. The New World Order began. The NWO got hot. The shirts sold. And I think Hogan deserves a lot of credit for that. I don't think it would have been as hot with Sting as it was with Hogan.
1: Nash has said that he believes Hogan saw the money train and decided to jump on board. Do you no think- question. Yeah. I mean, I don't think anybody could argue that, that Hogan saw, Hey, this was an opportunity and he's kind of the master of picking his spots. He picked a good one here.
0: Well, he always was in charge of his storyline. He was always in charge of his gimmick. That's that's, that was a contract that Eric had with him. So he could have kiboshed it and they could have done nothing. But Hogan was to me smart enough to where he knew where the money was and where the money would be. And he was right. We all were right. I don't know, I'm not going to credit myself with with uh, developing this angle, but we as a company, we were right in doing that that night. And Hogan pulled it off. Absolutely pulled it off.
1: Um, Bischoff didn't arrive at the building until moments before the start of the live main event because he was working out the final details with Hogan. And WCW created yet another last minute angle claiming Bischoff wasn't even there and that he might have been kidnapped. An angle right. with no conclusion on the pay-per-view because it simply wasn't planned in advance. It was blown right. off the next day on television when Bischoff said he was simply at some high-level meetings at the last minute. So it's right. curious to think what might the story have been, you know, because if, if Hogan says no and, and gets cold feet about it, does that kind of change the storyline of what the kidnapping with Bischoff could have been like in regards to Sting? Now there's rumored innuendo out there. Uh, actually it's not rumored innuendo. Kevin Sullivan straight up says he didn't want Hogan at the building and left to his own devices that weekend and have other people getting in his ear because allegedly Hogan had a lot of hangers on and mm-hmm. we, we, we listening to this probably have an idea of who some of those people may be who would get in his ear and say this or that about, this is a bad career move. Don't do it. You're going to kill it. You're going to kill us. That you're not going to be the same, you're going to hurt yourself, whatever it may be. And so, allegedly, not allegedly, Kevin Sullivan says he had Hulk Hogan spend the night at his house the night before, and he wanted to insulate him from contact with other boys and the outside world a little bit, and just continually program him to believe this was the right move. And clearly, it was the right move. Did you hear that story about Sullivan trying to insulate Hogan from the boys? Did not hear
0: that story. I heard it on Twitter. Uh the story that I heard on Twitter was uh that Hogan was at Kevin Sullivan's house to be convinced that night to do it. But apparently he had already been convinced. We're saying here that he was just trying to be insulated so he wouldn't change his mind, Correct.
1: right? Correct. I believe that he had decided eleven days beforehand this is what they were gonna right. do. Right. But I think everybody listening to this is familiar with the phrase that doesn't work for me, brother, the day of right. the show. So right. if he gets there and decides he wants to, ex- you know, execute, uh, creative control, th- then he could go ahead and say, Hey, I- I'm not going to do it. I'm going to have sting go in and then I'll run in and, you know, help sting or whatever the case may be. So he could have very clearly changed it. He didn't. And and the result was one of the biggest moments in wrestling history.
0: No question. No question. Great move by Kevin Sullivan. Sullivan sometimes does not get enough credit for what he does backstage or what he did backstage. And that, 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 that worked.
1: That Um, worked
0: because he was, he was absolutely right that night. Somebody could have got in Hogan's ear and changed the course of the NWO or who even knows without Hogan would it have been called the NWO would have still been called the outsiders. I don't know.
1: It got to a point to where Sullivan even said the night before the pay-per-view Hogan and his agent stayed at Sullivan's house and Hogan made, or Kevin made Hulk's agent sleep on the couch. And he put Hulk in another room. He was nervous that his agent or other hangers on that he had in the locker room, were going to get to him. Um, did you Hmm. think if this didn't work, that it would have hurt Hogan's drawing power anywhere else, or had, had it already happened and. It, the, the new had kind of worn off.
0: Well, the new had kind of worn off, but still, the, I thought there was still a lot that you could do with Hulk Hogan. Uh, Hulk Hogan, the giant, Hulk Hogan and Flair had run its course. You know, it's it's kind of all about creative. Uh, it wasn't the same Hulk Hogan that had come out in 1994 and won the title of Bash of the Beach, uh, but it was still Hulk Hogan. I always thought you could do something with that. Cause let's face it. he still back then was the biggest star in our business. It was, and, uh, not the greatest worker in our business as far as in ring work, but one of the greatest promos ever. And one of the biggest stars, Bruce Pritchard will tell you he's the greatest worker in the business. Cause Bruce Pritchard will say, uses the, the term work to in- incorporate everything, uh, gimmick talk and ring work. Uh, but Hogan was not the same Hulk Hogan that we had in nineteen ninety four. It was the right move. Um, and had it not worked, I don't had it not worked, I don't know how much longer Hogan would have been with us. I'm sure we're gonna based on
1: all those numbers. I'm sure we're gonna talk about Hogan in this turn and the the run of the NWO for years to come on this podcast. But before he ever left the WWF, Hogan would write in his book that he tried to talk to Vince McMahon about turning heel, and Vince said the Hulk could never be a bad guy. It just wouldn't work. And Hulk apparently had that thought in his head this entire time and was thinking, if Vince doesn't think it could work, I shouldn't do this. And he wrote, didn't he start, didn't he start out as a heel though? No, for sure. But I mean, that was a heel. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so when WCW started floundering a little, I went to Eric Bischoff and I said, look, brother, if I looked at these kids and I said, for years, I've been telling you to train, say your prayers and take your vitamins, but guys, I did it for the money. That simple statement would shock the wrestling world. It would turn me into a heel. Eric liked the idea, so he ran it by Ted Turner. I don't know how the hell Eric got him to agree to it, but Ted Turner said, okay, give it a shot. Just leave yourself an out if it blows up in your face. So we did. It fit him with something else we were doing, which was bringing some new talent into the fold. First, Scott Hall, who'd been Razor Ramon, came to WCW and said, hey, I'm from New York, but I'm coming into this minor league promotion to take it over. And guess what? My buddy's coming with me. And people were wondering who was going to show up next. Then the next week, Kevin Nash appeared. Nash was the former heavyweight champion. Oh my God. The fans went crazy. Holland Nash were branded stars straight from Madison square garden. They acted like they were pulling off a hostile takeover of the company. So of course, in typical Hulk Hogan fashion, no one convinced me to do this. It was my idea. And I went against the good judgment of Vince McMahon and no one had to sell me on the idea and it just happened to be that these other two guys were there turning heel, come down and have an opinion here, Tony, who do you believe? Well,
0: let me first of all, talk about what Hogan just said. All right. I can, I can, I may be wrong and I haven't read Eric's book either. I I can't ever think that they would run anything by Ted Turner. No, of course not. No, that never happened. That absolutely never happened. I don't believe that at all. I believe Hulk thought in his mind he could be a heel and had an idea about being a heel. But I always thought he had cold feet about doing it. So I don't think it really, as it gets right down to it, it was his
1: idea. Do you think this was the first time Hogan Tur- turning heel had been discussed in WCW or had it been discussed before? Uh, to me, it's the first time it had been discussed. Hogan said on Jericho's podcast that right after he won the title from Flair at Bash at the Beach 94, he started hearing boos from the fans, and he said the signs in the crowd went from, we love Hulk Hogan, to, have you taken your shots today? Yeah. Do you feel like it was that sudden, 1994, some of the fans had already turned against him, or just the Southern fans never really claimed him as their own?
0: No, wrestling fans were changing back then. Hulk Hogan and Hulkamania in the 1980s, society was changing, Conrad. It was now kind of hip to, in, to cheer the bad guys. It was now kind of hip to be a heel fan. And it wasn't, a, wasn't because they were turning on Hulk Hogan, they were turning on baby faces. They were turning on the Rock and Roll Express. They loved Ric Flair for being the baddest player in the game, the dirtiest player in the game, and his interviews. They loved the heels. The Four Horsemen went from being, you know, the the heels that you hated, to everybody showing the sign of the four. That was hip. That was cool. So society was changing, and it wasn't necessarily that they Southern fans were shitting on Hogan, or fans were shitting on Hogan. Wrestling fans were starting to shit on babyfaces. I mean, you can go back and look at it. Hall and Nash, we tried to portray them, that entire pay-per-view, as heels, as bad guys, as people who, was gonna, who were going to ruin us. But fans loved them because it was cool, it was hip to love the bad guys. That was what was going on at that time. If well. Hogan thinks they were turning against him, then he is putting the, the onus on him. And I can understand him doing that, but it was, it was how things were changing in wrestling.
1: Does, does that make sense to you? Absolutely, it does. Yeah. In the back after this promo that closes the show at Bash of the Beach, did you have a conversation with Hulk? How did Hulk feel about the way this was pulled off? Did not have a conversation with him, but I saw him at a distance
0: hugging some guys and talking to guys, and everybody backstage to a man, everybody was thrilled with what went on. You could see it in uh, the reaction to it from all, everybody. And it was one of those things where – it was pretty apparent that everybody in the building that night, you know, we 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 oversold the fact that you could cut the electricity with a knife and everybody wanted to know what was going on. And but that was in, in effect a shoot. No, because everybody sure. stayed and everybody watched and everybody in the backstage area with glued to the monitors to see what was going to happen and what the reaction would be. So it was it was qu- it was really quite a moment on many levels.
1: When the match uh, was over and, and, and garbage is coming into the ring, it's clear it's just going to be a promo because Mean Gene's out there. Right. You can look in the crowd, and normally when the main event is over, no matter what they're doing after, people are heading for the doors trying to beat the traffic. Nobody was leaving right. early here trying to beat the traffic. Everybody's hanging no. on to see. What's he going to say? Yeah, even the announcers weren't trying to beat the traffic, <laughs> which which we, us- we usually always
0: did. Uh, so it was it was a moment that... That was big on many many levels for all of us, and uh, I'm uh, again real thrilled that I was a part of that, and happy that my line uh, helped uh, helped it because you know I, I one of the first things I said was Hulkamania was dead right when he started the leg leg drop, and uh, it was, and it was probably dead before that, but it wasn't because of fans turning on Hogan; it was because fans were turning on babyfaces.
1: So chat me up, uh, we've talked about how everybody backstage loved it. Yada, yada, yada. Was there any negative backstage reaction to this? Did anybody feel this whole NWO heel Hogan thing wasn't going to work or was it 100% across the board? Everybody thought it was a home run.
0: hundred percent across the board. And I don't know if that was legit or, you know, I brought this up on past podcasts. We did a lot of ass kissing back then. Sure. And we all, we will always go, yeah, great job. You know, good job. No one, uh, No one said that sucked. We shouldn't do it. Everyone liked it. And I think at that moment, it was pretty legit.
1: All right. So let's real quick, let's go to Twitter. We asked you to uh, become involved in the show. You can always vote on the poll at WHW Monday on Twitter. And once we know what's going to win, we say, Hey guys, what do you want us to talk about? So we did that this week. Uh, former announcer, Dave Penzer says seven of the most famous words ever spoken in wrestling. Hulk Hogan, you can go to hell. Still one of the greatest sign offs of all time. So thanks for listening, Mr. Penzer. That's pretty cool. We appreciate you participating there. Uh, Dustin star wants to know how much heat did Bobby Heenan, uh, get for yelling, whose side is he on? I did not see
0: any heat. I did not see Eric go to him and admonish him for it or anybody say any bad thing about it. I think, I, I think that, I think that line is, 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 uh, Not that important. I think it's important to some of the fans because everybody tries to be a Monday morning quarterback. But I don't think in the context of the show that night, it really came off as anything that bad. So he, he didn't get any heat that I saw.
1: Do you think Bret Hart could have been as successful as Hogan in this role, or did it have to be Hogan for it to be as successful?
0: Well, now I can say no. I don't think he would have been. But I don't know because Bret was a big star back then. That's again, a Monday morning quarterback thing. I cannot see anything being bigger than Hogan turning right here.
1: Um, Frank on Twitter wants to know at the end of the night, when you suggested Hogan go to hell, was that line fed to you or something you said in the heat of the moment? You already answered that, but he said that yeah. to ask this the following night on nitro, you issued an apology. Was that apology storyline driven or directed by the big wigs at Turner?
0: No, that was storyline. That was storyline driven. That was not directed by the big wigs at Turner. Uh, to say hell on a pay per view, not at all. Uh, that was storyline driven, and uh, I don't even think I was fed that line. That was that was before I was fed lines. All that stuff, you know. I uh, I had some lines fed to me by Bruce Pritchard back when I was in the WWE, and then I went to WCW, and no one fed me lines until we started to go downhill, and everybody wanted to micromanage the company.
1: Um, what happened? Randall wants to know what happened to the fan that tried to get in the ring. Was he arrested?
0: Yeah, he was arrested and I hope somebody beat the fuck out of him.
1: Um, what did Tony Schiavone think when mean Gene got hit in the head with a full soda pop that was thrown in the ring, which Hulkster laughed about?
0: I thought it was funny too. Sorry. (laughs) Just because I know me, Gene, (laughs) I'm glad he didn't get hurt and I would have felt bad about laughing had he gotten hurt, but that was pretty cool.
1: Who would you have picked as the third man, and why is it Tom Zink?
0: Uh, I don't know if I would have picked Tom Zink as the third man uh, as much as I would have picked maybe Ray Mysterio Jr. without his mask on.
1: Oh, he was good-looking, wasn't
0: he? He's a good-looking guy. I knew you were Absolutely, him. yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, I guess Jim Powers was was handsome, and, and Paul Roma, they were very handsome, too, in their own way. So if we're going for handsomeness, it probably would have been Ray Mysterio because he was really – had, you know, he was, he was a very handsome facial, cute, good looking guy.
1: Uh, Todd Adams. Wants Where am I to know? going with this? Shit? I don't what know. The? You're you're okay. just purging your soul. of You're just letting it out. Todd okay, Adams thanks. wants to know, was the Hulkamania turned to the dark side angle a year prior, a practice heel run for Hogan. I think what he's talking about here is in 95, you know, Hogan shaved off the mustache, stopped wearing red and yellow, started wearing all black. This is around Halloween havoc. 95. Do you remember this moment? Yeah, I can remember
0: this moment. It was not a practice run. It Was just a, another angle to try something different. Practice run? No. I don't think I don't think we ever did any Well, I know we never did any practice runs of shit as far as angles are concerned. Either turn or you don't.
1: Uh the hard-hitting questions like this is what we can count on sometimes. This comes to us okay. from two dogs humping uh and th- he says my question for Tony is should I flip a steak just once or multiple times when cooking it.
0: Now what you should do is you should put a you should put the steak on the grill very very hot and sear it on both sides and then move it away from the flame and put the top on it and then let it bake a little bit. That's what you should do. Sear both sides to lock in the flavor and then move it away from the flame and use indirect heat, and go fuck yourself.
1: I was like, he's really giving good advice here. This is not what I was hoping for. I am Andrew wants to know, did Tony prefer Alan Iron Eagle, Charlie Norris, or Joe Gomez? This is what we need right here. Alan Iron Eagle. Steven wants to know, was Glacier's debut pushed back because of the NWO? It's a real question. I mean, we've all heard that. Okay. Uh, yes, it was. I love you.
0: You're just like yes, just yes, fucking move it on. was. I yeah, care. I mean, you know, if you're going to push, if you're going to have the biggest angle ever for your company, why not push one of the biggest cluster fucks back to stay away from it, right?
1: What did you think about the rubber sharks on the show?
0: The rubber sharks on the show. Uh, the, the, I, I didn't mind that. I I did thought it was stupid for them to hit each other with it. Um it, it, it was it it was pretty good fodder for some funny commentary for Dusty and uh and Heenan. Right? So it worked as a prop two ways. It was a prop for the beach look that we had, and it was a prop if they hit each other with a shark for Heenan and Dusty to say something silly.
1: If Hogan didn't turn that night, what would have been the alternate plan for him? That comes to us from Paul on Twitter. Well, the alternate plan,
0: if he didn't turn that night for him to continue to be a babyface, the alternate plan would have been for him to be the lead guy for WCW against this hostile takeover. Whether that would have worked or not, I don't know, but that was the plan.
1: Well, anything else that we can um, cover about the Great American Bash 1996? It feels like We've left no stone unturned, but you were there. Uh, Any other stories or little tidbits you'd like to share with us before we wrap up this week's topic?
0: I I think that,
1: uh, I really felt good about the
0: commentary. I really felt good about the three-man team of me and Dusty and Heenan working together. I really thought leaving that. Well, what are you laughing about?
1: Uh, I'll I'll tell you in a minute. Keep going. I'm sorry.
0: (laughs) Okay you laughing at me, motherfucker. No. You think I'm bullshitting you?
1: Let me just go uh, ahead and okay. do it. Jonathan Presley okay. on Twitter wants to know, why does Hulk Hogan and Terry belong? <laughs> <laughs> okay. okay, let me t- let me ask you this first. Have you okay. seen the new documentary on Netflix about the Hulk Hogan Gawker trial? Uh, I started to watch it.
0: And then when I saw shots of Donald Trump in there, I'm just thinking, eh, it's a guy wanting to bury the president again. So I I, I didn't watch it.
1: Well, the name of the movie, if you're, if you're out of the loop on this, is it's called nobody speak trials of the free press. And in there they show video footage that was leaked at the time, not leaked, but it was, it was public at the time in the middle of this Hulk Hogan gawker lawsuit, but now everybody's talking about it again. So I Mm -hmm. guess that's where this question comes to us from Jonathan Presley. He wants to know, um, why does Hulk Hogan and Terry Balea have different size wieners?
0: Well, one's a working dick and one's a shooting dick.
1: Are you a working dick or a shooting dick? And which one am I?
0: (laughs) Oh, you're a shooting dick. I can tell you that right now. I try to work around it. Tom
1: Zink's or who's? If I
0: can can find it. If I can find it.
1: Do you remember when this was, uh, once upon a time we tried to do a legitimate show here about Bill Goldberg. And it feels like every week since has gotten more and more off the rails. Well,
0: it's got off the rails because that's how I am. And you, you, you know, you, you set up all this shit and then you step away like, Oh, it, it's not me. It's you and your foul mouth doing all this bullshit. But you put the golf ball on the tee and I just try to swing at it. So you're, you got some of the shit on you too there, fella. You do understand that. Don't you
1: not conduct bill shit. I hope. Hey, so we want to see you this coming Sunday in Dallas, three links Come see us right before great balls of fire. We want to see, you. you can get there at w h w live.com. Bruce Pritchard is going to join us. We're going to have lots of foul mouth fun together. We're going to make you laugh and we want to fellowship with you. We're going to hang out with you, take your pictures, do your autographs, do some Q and a's and man, just catch up with our wrestling friend family. And we're going to do that from one to three. And then we're on stage three to five. We're going to try to make you laugh. We hope you can join us. Come check us out. It's this Sunday, July the 9th in Dallas. Right before Great Balls of Fire, that card is shaping up to be a tremendous pay-per-view. We hope you can check us out both. But if you can't screw the WWE, come see us. You're going to have a good time. WHWlive.com is where you pick up your tickets. And don't forget, as always, you can pick up a shirt from ProWrestlingTees.com forward slash WHW. And if you order right now, it might be here in time for you to sport it on over at our show at Three Links. We can't wait to see you there. Tony, is there anything else you want to mention before we wrap it up here? Uh, thanks to everybody who's bought a t-shirt. We look forward to seeing everybody in Dallas.
0: Uh, we have some great stories that I've never told before that we're going to tell in Dallas. And I can't wait to reconnect with Bruce because there are some things that he remembers that I remember much differently. So I'm right now calling him out as being a lying shithead about some of the stuff he said about me. I don't lie on this show. I don't remember everything. But I don't lie on this show. Well, we're not going to lie. next. And
1: I kind of think he does at times. I think he bullshits people. Of course he does. He's he's in the wrestling business. Uh, So let's go ahead and tell you how to participate in next week's show. If you cruise on over to our Twitter feed right now at WHWMonday.com, you'll see pinned to the top right there uh, a question and answer section of the site. Right pinned to the top. And we want you to go ahead and ask Tony anything, literally anything. And, uh, we will try to cover it next week here on what happened when Monday with Tony Schiavone, we're doing a Q and a format this week, simply because we're going to be in Dallas when we're normally taping this show. Uh, so because we're not in our normal setup and our normal rigs, we're just going to do a and a, that'll give us an opportunity to get together and tape another show before then without having the time for the research. So the poll will be back next week in the meantime, though, any question, any topic, cruise on over and ask us now at WHW Monday on Twitter. Tony, I realize we've gone more than two hours now, so we're desperately out of time. And I think you should close this show kind of the way you did at the uh, 1996 Bash at the Beach. Tony, hit it.
0: Conrad, thank you very much. And we're wondering who the third man is going to be here for the Outsiders. Who could it be? Could it be Shitstorm Viola? I hope the hell not. And now through the curtain, oh my God, it's Bruce Pritchard! Bruce Pritchard is making his way through, towards the ring. This is really something to wrestle with. He gets in the ring. Here comes Mean Gene Okerlund. I can't believe it's what ha- what's happening. This is all set up by one man, Conrad Thompson. Conrad Thompson, you can go straight to hell. We're out of time on What Happened When.
1: That was rude. Today, we're going to be talking about wrestling with debt. Well, when our listeners need to save some money, what do they need to do? Uh, listen, stop asking them fool questions. He ain't got the answer today, baby. Take it from the second most recognizable athlete in the world today. com can be beat. They lower your monthly payments by $5, $4, $6, $8, $700 a month, baby. You got credit card debt, car loan, a second mortgage. There ain't no problem right here at savewithbruce.com. Punkerhead gonna take care of you today. You understand me, baby? Oh, yeah, we don't
0: need
2: perfect credit, uh,
0: huh?
1: Even with credit
0: scores in the 500, savewithbruce.com makes saving money. NMLS number 65084, equal housing lender. Mother.
2: We interrupt your current program for a special announcement from What Happened When Mondays with Tony Schiavone. We are pleased to announce a very special exclusive opportunity for fans of What Happened When to enjoy the Tony Schiavone experience the day before the Podcast Super Show in Dallas, Texas on Saturday, July 8th from 7pm to 10pm at a secret location. To sign up and confirm your spot or for more information, go to facebook.com slash Monday. The first 10 listeners to sign up and confirm payment for the Tony Schiavone experience will enjoy dinner with Conrad and Tony in an exclusive VIP lanyard. Assigned 8x10 of Tony, some What Happened When swag, a lifetime of memories, laughs, and good times, and there may be a surprise or two as well. We are limiting this experience to 10 listeners, so first come, first serve. We aren't buying you dinner, but you will get a a once-in-a-lifetime chance to hear stories, ask questions, and have a fun, intimate evening with Conrad and Tony. This is our first one, so count on being blown away by the experience. Now, once again, this is the day before the Super Show in Dallas on Saturday, July 8th from 7 p.m. to 10 p.m. For more information or to sign up and confirm payment and your spot, go to facebook.com slash WHW Monday. That's facebook.com slash WHW Monday. Hope to see you there. You now return to your scheduled programming. Stops.